Hi. This is Robbie Martin. This is going to be kind of an in-depth episode of Media Roots Radio, where I have on, again, welcoming back to the podcast, Gumby for Christ. But I felt it was important to start this episode by sort of going over what I've already previously covered having to do with this general subject. And the general subject is essentially blaming China for the outbreak and the spread of COVID-19. But inside that, specifically blaming China, claiming that it's some kind of engineered bioweapon that China unleashed on the rest of the world. Now, on previous episodes of Media Roots Radio, specifically a two-part episode that I did, with the first part titled, Bannon, Tom Cotton, Bill Gertz, an anti-China neocon propaganda in the wake of COVID-19. Part two is called The Committee on the Present Danger, China, as Dangerous as PNAC, Pandemic Neocons. In both of these episodes, I extensively cover the rush to claim that COVID-19 was created as a Chinese government bioweapon unleashed on the rest of the world. This theory was being pushed largely. Probably the most prominent person to push this theory specifically was Tom Cotton originally in the wake of the global pandemic. It was also echoed by many people in these specific neocon think tanks associated with Frank Gaffney, Steve Bannon, billionaire Miles Guo, also known as Guo Wangu. Other projects for the New American Century neocons were also associated with the think tank, the Committee on the Present Danger, like James Woolsey and, of course, Frank Gaffney. And now we see Gordon Chang from the Committee on the Present Danger going on the media constantly trying to essentially create more pressure and heat against China. But what I'm aiming to do on this podcast is to examine the very real possibility that COVID-19 was man-made. And by saying that, it's important to distinguish and to say this up front, that I am not in any way advocating for the theory or buying into the theory that this was some kind of Chinese government bioweapon creation. In fact, if you notice from the title of this episode, my prevailing belief, the one that I lean towards the most, is that if indeed it is discovered that COVID-19 somehow leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, and that hinges on a lot of different factors such as was Wuhan the actual origin of COVID-19? We still don't know. Was COVID-19 man-made? We still don't know. Although there seems to be, there appears to be a slowly building consensus of people at least willing to say that it could be man-made. But the possibility that I lean towards the most, that if it did indeed leak, or if it did somehow, well, I say shouldn't use the word leak, if it did come from this lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a biosafety level four lab located in Wuhan that's been around since 
about 2017, then it's very possible that this lab was set up, that this lab, in some sense, was a patsy. That's where my head tends to go, based on these discussions that I'm about to play for you, that I had with Gumby for Christ, who is a excellent researcher, who posts most of his research on Twitter. But Gumby for Christ sort of convinced me that this is a possibility, just in the basic sense, and that this lab does have coincidental ties to the virus itself, potential ties. However, one very important point that I need to stress is that this in no way means the Chinese government was behind this. In fact, almost every narrative, neocon narrative specifically, pushing this slant, even some of these long medium postings that you've seen before trying to push the idea that COVID-19 is man-made, that were circulating around the internet for the last year or so, are the quintessential definition of a limited hangout. Lies of omission, starting within the prism or the framework that the Chinese government was somehow responsible for this. All of these things, you will see hints of them and heavy-handed attempts to sort of color all these narratives with that circulating for the last year. So what I'm attempting to do is is to open your mind to the possibility that COVID-19 was potentially man-made or engineered in a lab, but also how all the narratives that we've been hearing about, about how it being made by the Chinese government and it being a bioweapon somehow controlled by the Chinese military, and this is a Chinese military project, is a deliberate limited hangout designed to stoke fear and resentment against China to a hysterical degree, much like the anthrax attacks were used against Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Now, this is very important because I am someone who's personally very invested in the continuing ongoing investigation into the 2001 anthrax attacks. It is still, in my mind, a completely unsolved case that directly aided the pitch for the Iraq war that Colin Powell made. One thing that we did glean from the anthrax attacks and that even the FBI's investigation also concludes is that the anthrax during those murders came from a U.S. government lab. The FBI believed it came from Fort Detrick, Maryland, a military installation that studies and manufactures bioweapons for the U.S. government. That being said, knowing that that already happened, and that's historically factual, at least that it was the AIM strain and that it was for U.S. government purposes, although we don't know for sure which lab created the 2001 anthrax. Some people also say Battelle and then even Dugway in Utah might have been involved. But that aside, this was not a top-down Chinese military bioweapons installation under the guise of some kind of research lab, as the neocons tried to paint it early on after this pandemic. This is, in fact, an international project involving people from the CDC, people who have studied bioweapons for the U.S. government, Americans, white Americans, working collaboratively with other countries and other people from different private 
organizations as well, all in conjunction working together at this lab. And what you will not hear is that some of the prime suspects that fit the most companies, groups of researchers, or individuals include mostly Americans, not people working directly for the Chinese government, not ethnically Chinese people, but white American people who live in the United States and have a long history of working in different bioweapons arenas for various U.S. government projects. So when you combine all these facts together, you get a very, let's say, a different narrative that's much more nuanced, much stranger. But that being said, I'm going to play for you two different interviews that I recorded, discussions that I recorded with researcher Gumby for Christ. Their first one was actually recorded last month, directly after a gigantic article came out in the New York mag called The Lab Leak Hypothesis. For decades, scientists have been hot-wiring viruses in hopes of preventing a pandemic, not causing one. But What If? by Nicholas Baker. Now, this article is very, very long and very, very detailed. I found it particularly compelling, so I asked Gumby for Christ to have a discussion with me on the podcast about this article. It was probably the most coherent and convincing article that touched on some of the issues that I just mentioned and had the least anti-China propaganda embedded in it, although it does still have some, and we will discuss that. Now, the second recording discussion that I had with Gumby for Christ was recorded only four days ago. And that discussion is sort of encapsulating everything that's happened since this January 4th article for New York Magazine written by Nicholas Baker. And it sort of reflects back on other potential possibilities of what may have happened. But since technically the first part of the discussion was recorded on a different microphone and before Trump technically left office, it might be a little jarring to transition from one to the other, but I'm going to try. But I'll make sure to drop in a little bridge of me letting you know when the second part of the discussion that I recorded with Gumby for Christ only four days ago will begin. And that one will start around one hour and 45 minutes into the podcast. But first, I start by asking Gumby for Christ about a very personal story about his family that relates directly to the discussion we're about to have. You have a lot of expertise in sort of the U.S. Biological Weapons Program. I mean, you you know a lot of obscure facts about it. Since you've decided to remain incognito in this Media Roots appearance, I won't ask you to in- divulge anything too specific, but there's a unique part about your past that I, I, you decided to divulge publicly that I only learned about when, uh, I think it was when the miniseries Chernobyl was getting hyped up by all these libs on Twitter and they were sort of thinking, you know, that they uh, grew up in the United States and didn't grow up in a country like Russia, or even some people are saying they're glad they left Russia after watching this special and moved to the United States. And you might have already divulged this fact about yourself before this, but it was something that must have had a formative and I, I would imagine sort of deep effect on how you currently view the world. And that was 
the U.S. military, I believe, sprayed some chemicals that essentially poisoned several members of your family. That's certainly what we believe. I mean, um, I, I wouldn't say the link has been clearly established that the illnesses derived from that, but certainly everybody in my family believes it. So the story, it first came onto my radar in 2012. This woman named Lisa Martino Taylor got a little bit of local news attention uh, because she was writing a PhD dissertation on a radiological weapons testing program that had um, happened in St. Louis, which is where I'm from and my family is from. Basically, and it wasn't actually new, but it was just the, she had gotten a lot of new information through a FOIA request. Um, The information had actually been out there for a while, but certainly this was the first, we and my family had heard about it around like 2011, 2012. And basically what the U.S. military did is that they were developing, after World War II, were developing all different kinds of weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons. And then what this was, was radiological weapons. They set up these aerosol sprayers in St. Louis, and they did this in a few other cities. Winnipeg did it. Minneapolis uh, did it. But St. Louis, I believe, was the biggest one. And they actually did it in in two groups in the early fifties and then the late in the early sixties again. And so they set up these aerosol sprayers in two different spots in the city, and it sprayed out uh, zinc cadmium sulfide. And it, it's a little hard to talk about in the sense that there are a lot of layers, I believe, to what what the real story is, but. The official story that's acknowledged is they sprayed zinc cadmium sulfide and they were testing the dispersal of the particles that were spraying out of the aerosol. And so they actually set up two different spots. One was in Pruitt-Igo, which is a pretty well-known housing project in St. Louis that was uh, basically all black, um, you know, lower class uh, federal housing project. Uh, There's a really good movie about it actually called the Pruitt-Igo Myth uh, documentary. And then the other one was set up in what would be called kind of South City near Grand and Gravoy, specific <laughs> St. Louis geography. But um, that one was the point of spray was probably about a block or two away, maybe two blocks away from where my uh, mom and her family lived at the time. And <clears throat> so nobody knew this. It was completely secret. There were probably based on Lisa Martino Taylor's book, maybe like six people in the entire city who knew this was happening at the time. And uh, years later, um, my mom got Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's actually, in my pin tweet, it's actually misidentified. It's not Hodgkin's, it was Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, My uncle had cancer for, he had several different times and went into remission. He ended up dying at the age of 39. Um, and he had a, a I'm not going to remember the, the name real well, but it was a, it's a pretty rare form of throat cancer that like is most identified in like Vietnamese fishermen or something. It, it's not something you would normally see at all. Uh, my aunt, um, uh, gave birth to a baby with the, the, where the organs were actually in like a sack outside of the body. Uh, so birth defect and and my other aunt actually had um, tumors on her brain 
Um, and th this all, all of these things kind of happened around the time they were in their mid to late thirties. Wow. Uh, so they all kind of popped up around the same time. So we certainly have our suspicions that that was related to the, the testing. Now, <clears throat> zinc cadmium sulfide is not, is not radiologic and is not, um, well, the official story is that it's not dangerous at all. Um, now there are people who would definitely dispute that and would see that the cadmium can be a carcinogen. The the deeper level to Lisa Martino, Martino Taylor's book is that she put together a lot of information that is suggestive. There's not proof, but it is very suggestive that what they were actually spraying was not a a um, a simulant, as they call it. It wasn't simulating radiation. It actually was radioactive. And what they were really spraying was strontium-90 or strontium-90 combined with zinc cadmium sulfide. And they were, you know, very precisely, part of what they were studying was very precisely trying to get the particle size just so, so that it would be most breathable and most get deep into your lungs. Because if it's too small, it doesn't do anything. If it's too big, you won't really breathe it in or it won't travel far enough or whatever. So... <clears throat> Um, if it's strontium-90, that is very radioactive and is basically just a radioactive thing. One of the interesting things is that my mom remembers this. I think she may even still have it. But in St. Louis, and they ended up doing this in other cities, but it started in St. Louis, is there was a milk tooth study. And so what they were doing is they were having kids like, um, I don't know, you know, kids in elementary school send in their, their baby teeth when they lose them. Um, and it was, and you got a little like a uh, pin or placard thing and said, I, I gave my teeth to science. And the reason they were collecting these was to study if there was radiation in your system. Wow. And the, the kind of explanation for why they were doing that was that they had explored, they had done all these atomic tests out in the West and did that infect the milk supply and get into children's teeth? Now, what Martino Taylor's book suggests, again, heavily without really, you know, I, I wouldn't say there's absolute proof, and I, I doubt there would ever be absolute proof of this kind of thing, um, is that that study, really what it was trying to do was to study the effect of the radiological spraying program. And that the because strontium ninety builds up in in calcium in your in your system, and so it would build up in your teeth. And so they were seeing from that they could tell how much the strontium ninety had gotten into your system. So this would test how effective the radiological weapons uh, that they were testing on a live population was. So that part is more speculative. The strontium ninety part, I do want to stress that, but um, there. Were, is definite information. I would definitely, if anybody's interested, there's a book called Behind the Fog by Lisa Martino Taylor, um, which is unfortunately kind of expensive because it's one of those books where it's like a Rutledge book where they just print a, a PhD dissertation. Of course. It's pretty expensive. Yeah. But uh, her dissertation basically is all the same information that's free online. So um, either look that up or contact me. I can send it to you. Um. But so that that's that story, and that has certainly colored my thinking my thinking ever since quite a bit. And there there are a lot of other 
similar stories. Her book certainly assembles a lot of really horrifying information. There was a a study on a um, cognitively disabled children's school where they they literally put radioactive material in the oatmeal. They told them it was a nutrition program. It was funded by Quaker Oats and the U.S. government, and they were just testing how the radiation traveled through their bodies. Um, yeah, there's a lot of biological weapons test stuff. I mean, um, uh, the New York City subway system, I think they did biological weapons tests. And I mean, once you, and obviously Tuskegee experiments, that's kind of a well-known one. I guess one other point I wanted to make on the St. Louis one, I have a particular theory about it, which is not, I don't think she really talks about in the book. It's just something that I've thought about. So Pruitt, I go, is almost all black. The area my uh, family grew up where this other spring <coughs> point was, is was predominantly white, if not, you know, probably overwhelmingly white. So I do have a theory that they were trying to test whether there was any racial distinguishing between how the radiation affected people. And we know that they did this because back in, for example, in World War II, they did racially based tests with mustard gas, where they were trying to see if mustard gas affects black people different than white people. And um, I, I know there are some other examples out there, too. So that's my personal theory on what may have been going on there and why they had these two different uh, testing points set up. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty disturbing and interesting story among many lesser known stories like this that we hear about of uh you know experimentation done on the public with either chemical weapons uh radiation even in some instances some kind of biological agent where i think what was the word you used earlier where it's like um simulated versus real or yeah or live or I mean there's a video that's been around for ages ever since I can remember when I started looking into you know deep politics stuff online where it's all about that experiment where they used what they considered an inert biological virus um to to trace its transmission rate and where they use a guy with a suitcase pumping it out through a fan throughout San Francisco right 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 and uh so how, who knows how much stuff like that's been done. I mean, the amount we already know about is alarming already. It's like, you know, it almost does yeah. seem kind of like Nazi human experimentation. It's, it's, it, it has an air of, um, of sort of horror and creepiness to it that, you know, it's sort of like this dark sort of nightmarish quality about America that people just don't want to really look at. It's not just the Tuskegee experiments, you know, it's like, we, we look yeah. at these historical milestones of like horror in our history and we're like, oh yeah, we used to do those horrible things. Like, no, this is like baked into what we are now. Like we're not, we're not some clean imaginary that's in the past kind of version of ourselves. And there's a direct line between, the, so you, you compared it to the Nazis and what I would say is there's a direct line between the Nazis and the Japanese because the Japanese were very involved in biological weapons specifically yep. uh, through Unit 731, which is probably the most, you know, whatever horror you can imagine, that is the most horrific. Anything you've heard about the Nazis, this is as horrific. Um, you know, live vivisections, you know, live surgery on people who are still alive. There's an infamous horror, horror uh, series based on it. You know, the guinea pig uh, series? 
yeah, there's again, there's actually a few men behind the sun. Okay. Was also, and, um, philosophy of a knife, I think was another one. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. I mean, mass rapes of women to give them venereal disease. Um, you know, they were just, they used biological weapons. They used plague. And what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, uh, it's pretty well known about Paperclip now, Operation Paperclip, where the U.S. rescued, essentially gave rat lines for Nazi war criminals to escape, mostly to South America, some to the United States. And, you know, some of the worst war criminals, um, you know, of the of World War Two um, escaped that way. Uh, what's less known is that the, a similar thing happened in Japan. and. What they did is that they took Unit 731, which was, like I said, doing the most horrific biological weapons experiments you've ever heard of, and they made a deal where they were going to protect all these people. There would be no war war crimes prosecution. Many of them actually went on to have long careers in the Japanese medical establishment. And Shiro Ishii, who is the head of Unit 731, was very specifically protected by the United States. He in exchange for all of the information about their biological weapons program. So all the research that they had done, all the photos of, you know, babies who'd been infected with plague oh. and, and, and live, uh, you know, surgery, people cut open who are still alive, all that stuff was handed over to the U.S. government to inform their, their, their own biological weapons program. And, Yikes. um, Shiro Ishii, there are stories that he may have come to the United States and may have even spoken at Fort Detrick. I think those are unconfirmed, but uh, they certainly protected him. And he went on to live, you know, his life in Japan after the war. He was never, you know, brought up on any charges. And and my understanding is Japan is not, you know, you're not, they're not taught this history at all in schools or anything in the same way that we're not taught any of our, you know, extreme horrors and atrocities that the u.s has committed yeah let's talk about one of the other notable examples of uh the u.s government um the u.s military committing atrocities with uh biological weapons you were mentioning to me this uh korean war um biological weapons um article by jeffrey k i think it was might have been in counterpunch and only i think fairly recently did i really understand the extent of it. And I sadly didn't fully realize until I watched the Wormwood miniseries by Errol Morris. You know, it's about Frank Olson uh, being uh, essentially pushed out a window. The guy who was uh, the CIA said that he took too much acid and freaked out and jumped out a window. But really underneath all that is the narrative about him apparently being uh, someone who wanted to go public about the, his role in the Korean biological weapons program. So tell me a little bit about this, um, what your interest is in how the U.S. Army used uh, biological weapons in the Korean War. And also, what is this book important? Like the Jeffrey K. article is about this book called Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act. Is that book excel- itself an important resource or would you recommend more people check out Jeffrey K.'s sort of uh, analysis on this subject? Well, I would certainly recommend Jeffrey Kay. Uh, I, I have not read the book, so I, I couldn't say okay. for sure. But um, I'll, I'll circle back to that because um, it, it may feed into another topic we want to talk about. But 
So the Korean weapon, so Unit 731, it, it's not clear that it was even ever really completely shut down. It may have just been because what happened is in the Korean War, um, the U.S. was obviously fighting Korea and um, North Korea and China was on the side of, of North Korea. Well, so the United States um, faced allegations that they were dropping germ warfare weapons on North Korea. And most of these, it wasn't really in like the main theater of combat for the most part, is my understanding. It was up on the border between North Korea and China. And so some of it was actually dropped in China. Some of it was dropped on North Korea, um, allegedly. So the U.S. Fought has fought tooth and nail really for decades, denying that this ever happened. They say it's Chinese communist disinfo. Uh, they called it Soviet disinfo. There was a document that supposedly showed how the Soviets had manufactured evidence that it didn't really happen, and they were just trying to scare people and whip up anti-American sentiment or whatever. Jeffrey Kay has shown pretty conclusively that that was a forgery. I mean, I think some other people did before that too, but Jeffrey Kay certainly consolidated a lot of evidence on that, that that was a, just a simple forged document, a complete hoax to hide the fact that the United States did drop biological weapons onto North Korea. And I mean, this stuff is, is, um, the, the way that they were doing it was they would infect rats and voles, which are kind of rat-like creatures. I don't know exactly what they are. Fleas, ticks, uh, beetles, flies, spiders. They would have porcelain bombs that would just break open when they hit the ground. They tried aerosols, similar to what I was talking about in uh, St. Louis, my hometown. Uh, they, they, they literally infected feathers and dropped feathers. They drop. They infected leaflets, like pieces of paper, and dropped them. And uh, they used plague. They used cholera. They used encephalitis. They used anthrax. Um, the thing about it is, it does appear that it was primarily experimental. So they weren't. This wasn't really a main feature of the war they were doing. The war they did was, by the way, insanely horrific. They used more napalm on North Korea than they used in Vietnam. They, uh, every building over three stories or something in North Korea was destroyed. Something like a third of the male population of Korea died in that war of That's North Korea. Crazy. I mean, it is the most insane war crimes, you know, that it, it, it was one massive war crime, the, the Korean War. And so the, this biological weapons part, it is a little bit of an appendage, I think, to the war. Not that many people died, uh, as far as we can tell. But there were town, you know, towns were completely freaked out by it because they would see a plane fly by and then a bunch of ticks fly toward them. And they, there were towns that literally, um, you know, a, a disease would pop up and start infecting people. And they killed all the, like, cats in the town or all the dogs in the town because they thought it, it could be coming from them. And the U.S. even, um, I think in the late... 50s prosecuted uh, some Americans who uh, were trying to report and reveal evidence about uh, the the biolo biological weapons program in North Korea, and um, I think charged them with sedition. 
<laughs> and um, so what Jeffrey Kay has done is he's gone back because there are two pretty good sources of evidence. One is this thing called the um, International Scientific Commission uh, that was done in 1952. And this was basically an international commission of scientists, including this guy who I think was like one of the you know most respected international kind of medical scientists of the time. They were called in to investigate, did war crimes happen here? Were biological weapons used? And they assembled like a 500-page document um, documenting every single one that they, they had found out about. And that uh, document was basically, you could not get it in the United States. I think there may have been one library that had one copy of it. <laughs> uh, but what Jeffrey Kay did was he got a hold of it and he scanned it in and he uploaded it online. And this was a couple of years ago. Badass. And that really kind of piqued my interest about it. And more recently, he went and found um, that there were actually CIA cables, I think they were. And the CIA was kind of documenting, they were intercepting, I think, communications um, from the North Koreans to the Soviets or North Koreans to the Chinese or something like that. And so they would document basically like what they were saying. And one of the things they were saying is, you know, there's a bunch of biological weapons being used on us. So this seems like pretty strong evidence that that is, in fact, a real, you know, that that is real evidence of um, biological weapons being used because it would be a very bizarre hoax to say that the CIA was manufacturing evidence of what the Koreans were saying about what the U.S. was doing or whatever. And the other piece of this I should say is that one of the first times that this came out was that some U.S. pilots were shot down, uh, that they were on bombing raids over Korea. They were shot down and they were taken prisoner. Mm -hmm. And they were filmed yeah. saying... We dropped biological and they look haunted. I mean, they look like, you know, like they can't believe what they've been asked by their government to do. Um, I mean, they really look shaken up about it. Um, and they were put on film and that I don't know how that film was ever transmitted, but somehow it did get to the U.S. I don't know if it was ever shown at the time. I believe it's used in Wormwood. And the response from the U.S. was those guys were brainwashed. They were tortured into saying it. And they basically accused the North Koreans of doing the exact same kind of torture, uh, brainwashing techniques that they were at the time <laughs> <laughs> developing through Project Bluebird, which was the forerunner of MKUltra and, and all that. So Jesus Christ. It's, um, so it ties around pretty, pretty neatly. And the thing, so going back to... Jeffrey Kay and Nicholson Baker. So Nicholson Baker is a novelist who's written, you know, a fair amount of nonfiction over the years. And um, he, um, he wrote a book called The Mezzanine, a novel in the 80s. It's pretty, you know, well-known kind of sort of postmodern novel. Anyway, he wrote a book called Baseless last year that you mentioned. I, I have not read it, so I don't want to pass judgment on it at all. But Jeffrey Kay wrote a a very fair-minded review of it in Counterpunch. And what he said is that this is a very valuable work. It collects a lot of information. It looks at some documents that hadn't been looked at before. And Nicholson Baker, I think, takes a kind of um, literary approach where he incorporates like some of his diary entries or things that aren't really directly related to the topic, you know, 
and kind of shows how it's how the these horrors are sort of affecting his his daily activity or whatever. But what Nicholson Baker draws a very weird conclusion from it all, which is that he says that the U.S. did drop some fleas and rats and whatever, but they, except maybe in very minute circumstances, did not drop actual biological weapons. That what they were trying to do was actually a psyop to make the North Koreans think that they were dropping biological weapons in order to terrorize them or something. Hmm. It's a very weird kind of strained argument from what I can tell. Um, And I don't exactly know why he ended up believing that. Um, I did see recently that Jeffrey Kay kind of asked him about, you know, pointed toward one of his own articles uh, to Nicholson Baker on Twitter and kind of asked him about it. And he didn't really seem to do much with it. He just kind of reiterated the stuff that was in his book from what I could tell. So, um, so that Nicholson Baker, I, I think this is what we also wanted to get into is wrote this recent article in New York magazine. Oh yeah. Okay. So that's how it actually connects. I didn't even, <laughs> you did a better segue than I was going to do. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, um, um, yeah. So that yeah, this this article in New York Magazine, I'll, I'll just quickly describe it from from my side of it. It seems like it is probably the most effective mainstream media article I've seen so far, trying to make the case for a lab leak. It makes the most convincing case, perhaps, that I've seen, and it also seems to be sort of turning the tide a little bit in the general consensus. But maybe that's also just an illusion because the article really leans on that idea that internally there's a lot of people, apparently a lot of scientists who are now coming forward saying that COVID-19 is possibly a lab leak accidental from from Wuhan. Um, and one of the overriding themes in the article is it's accidental um, and it's from Wuhan uh, that, you know, there's no other origin points discussed or things like that. But like you've been following this a lot more closely than I have, and I think you you understand some of the you know the details a lot better than I do. So, what was your sort of initial reaction to this article? But also, like, what are your, what is your take on the far right's sort of engagement? Like even neocons uh, who are pushing this narrative, and how do we actually engage with this discussion without you know playing into that? Because that's been something I've been trying to be very careful of, and it's I find it very challenging, actually, at times. I think it is hard because, well, it's hard because, for one, here's a little data point I'll, or a, a, a point I'll mention. The very same day the New York article came out, which I agree is definitely the most thorough and has the best, most up-to-date information in terms of building the case that there was a lab leak. Uh, from Wuhan. That very same day, Matthew Pottinger, who's, I forget what his exact title is, he's some DOD official, he says that it came from Wuhan. And he says that he's been talking to some whistleblower at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, who's going to come forward and, you know, blow the whistle on on what was going on at this lab. Huh. So I, I do think you're right. And that, interestingly, didn't get all that much attention, maybe because it's a Trump official and, you know, there's, you know, we, 
they're the mainstream media does not certainly buy what the Trump officials are saying right now necessarily. And has been fairly hostile to the idea that it was that it there was any human involvement in this virus at all. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of hostility to that idea. So as far as the narrative goes, I mean it, it's a fairly complicated story. Um it I guess the earliest way that it goes back is that in 2013, and this all, I'm kind of putting it chronologically, but it's all come out kind of piecemeal. And it's been put together really by a lot of people on Twitter. There are, there are certain Twitter users who really have assembled quite a bit of information. And Nicholson Baker, to his credit, because people in the media don't always do this, does actually cite to the people on Twitter that he's gotten information from. So, sure. Um, Can you name some of these people that that he does cite f- from Twitter, just so we yes. know who they are? Um, so offhand, I think uh, Billy Bostickson is mentioned. He's um, he's done a lot of threads on looking at genomes and um, looking at uh, uh, papers that have been published and and um, things like that. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not remembering totally i think he may re- what about that guy yuri diggin yuri diggin is mentioned in there uh because he got um he had written a kind of influential medium post kind of analyzing the genome um that um that got a lot of attention then he ended up actually i think publishing a paper uh, that I believe was a peer-reviewed paper on uh, kind of going over some of the same information. And just wanted to make a comment really quick about about that guy's work, as I, you know, I found some of the stuff he was saying pretty convincing as well. And then I sort of got tripped up on, you know, he would start talking about. He wrote a re- rather long medium post, I yeah, believe, that was very, long. very very long, and in it somewhere. He just started dabbling too much into the whole, you know, missing cell phone story that was going around. That Daily Mail was sort of widely broadcasting this idea that there were millions of missing Chinese citizens who had been secretly, even the allegation was they were being secretly cremated. Um, and so I just didn't, you know, I, I guess I sort of brushed him off because I figured he's not maybe necessarily being responsible. But that, you know, I was trying to still separate what he was saying from the science that he was, you know, talking about. So. But but continue on with the. Um... I will definitely say yeah. I will agree that that is a very unfortunate feature of a lot of <clears throat> the people who are looking into this is that they they definitely get into um, anti-China rhetoric in a way that you know I would not I'm not comfortable with either. Um, so. I, I, yeah. So to go through the story, basically, it's that in um, 2012, 2013, uh, some miners got sick. Um, they were apparently either clearing out or harvesting bat guano in a in a mine shaft, an abandoned mine shaft in um, kind of remote part of China. So they get sick. They're tested for various known illnesses. It doesn't really match up with any of them. And um, at some point, Xi Zhengli, who is the kind of head coronavirus woman, she's often referred to as the quote unquote bat woman of China. Um, mm-hmm. she, Which is a really early part of the 
like the far right was really running with that a long time ago. And some of these people yeah. were as well, but that popped up really early, like in May or even I want to say like March or April, like right after this started yeah, happening. Yeah, definitely very a lot early on. Well, a lot of the early stuff had focused on this paper that she co-authored with this guy named Ralph Barrick, who is uh, runs the Barrick Lab at University of North Carolina. And they do, it was a, it was a work basically doing gain of function research on bat coronaviruses. Yeah. And it was from, I don't know, 2013 or 14. So that immediately looked, you know, pretty suspicious. You have the Wuhan Institute of Virology working with this guy who's very well known, you know, if you look into him, he's very well known for doing gain of function research and specifically on bat coronaviruses, um, which is what, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is purported to be a bad coronavirus. And who is, he, give a little background about him, because doesn't he have involvement with U.S. bioweapons? Yeah, well, yes. So, I mean, certainly if you listen to somebody like Francis Boyle, who um, authored, or, you know, authored the implementing legislation for the Biological Weapons Convention in the 80s, um, and was a, a very early person pointing the finger at Fort Detrick uh, for the anthrax attacks as well. You know, he what he would say is that all of this gain of function research is a bio is part of a larger biological weapons program. And gain of function research is where you take a virus and you make it either more virulent, more deadly, uh, more able to transmit to humans, things like that. You add properties to it to make it worse, essentially. And and one of these described in the paper, which was interesting, because he really, the author really does a good job of sort of illustrating some of these processes to a layman like myself, where he says that they yeah. created fake mucus to test the these additions they were doing on the on the viruses to see how well it would transmit through mucus. Yeah, generally. and they would they also tend to use animals as a kind of. Um, because certain animals, especially rodents, for some reason, seem to have um, similar lung structure or something. So they'll use ferrets and they'll use mice and they'll try to see if they can transmit this virus from a bat or from a Petri dish or whatever, however they do it, into a ferret or into a mouse. Or, and if they are able to do that, then it looks like it probably can transmit to a human. So th this research is extremely controversial. I tend to agree with Francis Boyle that this is largely part of a bioweapons program. The U.S. has a not acknowledged bioweapons program that violates the Biological Weapons Convention, which we are a signatory to, uh, which we have implementing legislation for, but for which there is no international verification mechanism. So the Bush administration basically in the early 2000s defeated all of these attempts to try to set up something similar to like the OPCW for chemical weapons. They were trying to get an international body for biological weapons where you would be able to go into BSL-3 and BSL-4 labs, the highest security labs where these viruses are dealt with, and you know verify that they're not doing work that looks like biological weapons work. They're not stockpiling anthrax or whatever they're doing. Um, so the Bush administration defeated that. And then in 2003, kind of on the heels of the SARS epidemic, passed this Project BioShield Act legislation, which massively expanded the funding for 
for biological labs. And really a lot of that work is directed toward novel viruses. So not in, not toward treating viruses we already know about, you know, trying to get a better flu shot or, you know, prevent malaria more effectively, but to looking at what's the next virus that's going to come out. And the problem with that is that it offers very good cover for if you're trying to create a virus that could be used as some kind of biological weapon. That would be my kind of take on it. And, and I think that that kind of follows along from some of the stuff <laughs> that uh, Francis Boyle has talked about. Um, but I got way, <laughs> so I got off track from the story. So the, um, the miners are infected with this uh, mysterious illness. Xi Li, the bat woman of China, quote unquote, is brought in to look at it and investigate what they were infected with. And so she, I guess, determines that it's a coronavirus of some kind. And she has people from her lab go out to the same mine shaft, harvest a lot of guano samples uh, to see what viruses they can find that are in, you know, in these bats, because bats are a big reservoir of human uh, or of uh, not human diseases, but just viruses in general. For whatever reason, they seem to have a good immune system. And so they can have be holding lots of different viruses that if they jump to a human might kill us or make us sick. And so they, they take a lot of these samples back and they, it's a little bit unclear. So they sequence some and there's one in particular that's called RATG 13. And this became kind of the linchpin for the theory that the Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology was, was somehow involved in, releasing SARS-CoV-2 because RATG RATG 13 shares 96.2 or something percent um, similarity to SARS-CoV-2, the current virus we're dealing with. And um, the, the kind of odd part about this is that she does seem to have done some kind of obfuscation of this virus because she wrote a paper based on this virus, which she had identified by a different name back in like 2016 when she wrote this paper. And she wrote this whole paper about this new virus they'd found, but in that paper didn't mention that it had sickened these six miners a few years before and that that was the reason that they had found it. So that seems a little bit odd. And mm-hmm. The virus, how do we know that? How do we know that that's how they found it? Well, so this is kind of weird and interesting. So somebody found, um, so if you, there are actually stories, contempt, more contemporaneous stories about these miners and this illness uh, from the time. And if you look at those, it, it, it doesn't really talk about coronaviruses. It talks about a fungal infection, and that's what Xi Jinping had said in some interview at some point that these people had gotten fungal infection. And it talks about a different kind of virus, like a Henipa virus or something like that. But this guy, uh, so this actually was a find from Twitter, as far as I understand it, uh, by an account called The Seeker, The Seeker 268. Although I think Nicholson Baker actually misidentifies this and says it came from somebody else, but I'm pretty sure it came from The Seeker originally. Anyway, he found a thesis written by a doctor who treated the miners that was written back in 2013. 
and it was in Chinese in Mandarin. And he was able to find somehow found this paper online on some kind of database of like medical theses from Chinese colleges or something like that. And it confirms that they treated them, they identified positively, I guess, identified the viruses they were dealing with as coronaviruses. So that's a kind of interesting find because it plays a pretty big role in in showing that if all of that is true, you know, I haven't looked at what the website that this guy found it on, you know, was is there any possibility of of shenanigans going on? I don't know. But if that's all true, it means that Xi Jinping was lying about this virus she had found and hiding the fact that it had sickened these miners and misdirecting people to think it was a different kind of virus. Now, why was she doing that? Because all of that happened before SARS-CoV-2, before COVID happened at all. And then the the actual complete sequence of RATG-13 wasn't, she didn't, there's an online um, database of viromes. So labs are supposed to upload these when they secret, sequence a virus, I guess they're, they're maybe obligated to upload them to this online database. And she didn't do it until January 2020 for some reason, even though it came to be known that she had completely sequenced it in like 2017, 2018. Now, why did all of that happen? I don't know exactly. So there are different theories about this RATG13 virus. So some people think, okay, this definitely is the basis that was used to create SARS-CoV-2. That basically they were doing gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And from this RATG13 virus, they, you know, this is getting into the weeds of the like genomic sequence, but there is a particular protein, a spike protein, and this is what attaches to the ACE2 receptors that are in your lungs. And basically that's what allows it to be so infective for human beings. So they took out, because it's 96% similar to the virus we're dealing with right now, most of that difference comes in that spike protein. So it comes in that area that makes it so infective to people. And um, so one theory is, you know, RATG13 is the basis for that. Another theory, uh, this is a guy named Jonathan Latham, who runs this um, independent science news site that's pretty good. They, they published uh, Sam Husseini's article that's on this that I can talk about. Uh, he says that it, it was that was actually maybe a natural predecessor, and within the miners, as they got sick, it somehow developed into SARS-CoV-2. Um, Baker and a lot of others, like I said, you know, think that it was the basis. There are other people who think it wasn't the basis, but they collected a lot of similar viruses in that mine shaft, and one of those may have been used. And RATG13 was actually released kind of to further obfuscate the the whole process that went on there. And then this is the most interesting theory in a way. There are also people who believe that it was completely a fake sequence and that the the sequence of this RATG13 that was released is actually fake. And the main person who claimed this was this woman um, named Yan Li Meng, 
who is the whistleblower, quote unquote, from Hong Kong that well, Steve one Bannon and Miles Guo yeah. brought over. Uh-huh. So what's weird about it is that she supposedly she printed this or she published this paper through the Rule of Law Institute, which is Bannon and Guo's thing, their outlet. Yeah. And it was supposedly this like, you know, for a day or two, it was supposed to be this hard evidence, this, you know, great proof that um, the virus was made in a lab. The thing is, yep. she has kind of a totally outside the mainstream, even within the people looking at this, totally outside the mainstream view about what what is going on here, because she's saying, oh, no, they actually just made up that virus. And this other virus is completely genetically engineered. So that's weird because it even though it was meant to be this kind of you know hard proof, it actually kind of throws off the narrative <laughs> in a way that would have been useful to them. Um, Very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because they seem to have backed off and reapproached this lab leak theory a few times. And yeah. I guess judging by what they've put out there, that's interesting to hear that she has a totally different theory that doesn't line up with any of this stuff. Yeah. And I think it's been pretty widely dismissed. Um, I won't say it's been completely debunked uh, just because I, I wouldn't be in a position to say that. But I, I think anybody that I have looked at who's looked at that paper has said, yeah, there's pretty obvious major problems with it. And it's probably not her particular version of it is uh, wrong. You know. So I guess I'll just, since you gave pretty much the whole breakdown of what that article is laying out, and, and mm-hmm. I think you gave some of your opinion there about what things you think are credible about it. What did you see about the article initially that seems sort of omitted or, or maybe even that was you know, trying to limit the scope of this narrative that the author was trying to tell that you think might be really obvious things um, that he didn't mention or really important things uh, that he missed. Okay. So let me say one, one thing before I get to that, because one important thing that the article does do really well is it shows that Wuhan Institute of Virology was not doing these experiments on their own. They were almost. If you look at any of these SARS, or I mean SARS-like coronavirus research that they were doing, every time what you'll see is EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Dosick. This is a U.S.-based organization uh, that is supposedly in like pandemic ecology, but what they really seem to do is to be a conduit for NIH and USAID money to fund research into coronaviruses, a lot of which looks like gain-of-function research. And Peter Dasik has actually confirmed on Twitter that they were even looking at the spike protein in the in the virus and other very specific things that seem to confirm kind of a lot of the suspicion around, around what's happening here. So um, I, I do think it's good that um, Baker's article does talk about DOSIC and EcoHealth Alliance quite a bit because the confounding element of the story is, okay, Wuhan Institute of Virology, maybe they were doing some gain-of-function research there. Maybe they were looking at bat coronaviruses and even trying to essentially weaponize them or make them more virulent. Well, what was EcoHealth Alliance doing there? Why were they funneling NIH money into Wuhan and USAID money and this is the most interesting thing. Sam Husseini, 
uh, wrote an article where he looked at all of their funding. And what he found is that like the vast majority of it comes from the Department of Defense. And they of, of this particular lab? No, of EcoHealth Alliance. Oh, of the okay, of wow. This kind okay, of conduit for funding. Got this it. group is heavily funded by the Department of Defense. Something that they completely obfuscate on their website. He had to basically dig into their privacy policy to see, to even see a mention of Department of Defense. So this is a pretty weird thing where essentially the US government is completely backing this organization and this organization is the prime seems to be the primary funder of a lot of the exact research that's being done at this lab which people are looking at as possibly being the origin of SARS-CoV-2. So why that was ha- why is that happening is I think probably my biggest question um, in general on this whole thing. Which is interesting in and of itself because, you know, the way that the Trump administration and various people from it winked and nod and hinted about this and Tom Cotton came directly out and pretty much said it is that this was some kind of Chinese government bioweapon done right. by the CCP. Mm-hmm. Now, if we look at all the things you're saying and what's basically in this article is it seems like uh, some of the main potential suspects, if this was lab a lab leak, are U.S. defense-funded uh, people. I mean, how much overlap yeah. is there actually with, like, let's just say for just looking at two elements here, uh, the Chinese government and the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Of the people that are mentioned in this article, how many of them actually line up with U.S. government funding and, and various characters involved in the defense industry? I mean, I would say certainly Peter Dosick, who's mentioned EcoHealth Alliance. I mean, that's all U.S. government. Ralph Barrick is talked about who worked with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the Ralph Barrick article, the, the kind of first one that was out there talking about bat coronaviruses and Wuhan Institute of Virology, that study was also funded by Peter Dosick and EcoHealth Alliance, specifically with USAID money through this program called PREDICT. And what's interesting about that is that they actually hid that. You can see that it it's not on the original version of the article. And then they have like a, correctum, a, a correction or an addendum or something on the article that shows, oh yeah, we forgot to mention this was funded by USAID. So that's kind of interesting if USAID was trying to hide some of their funding of, of uh, bad coronavirus research. As far as the article itself goes, I mean, I think it does talk about these a lot. It just, a lot of it does focus on the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And I guess getting back to the, the question that I, I somewhat avoided that you asked me, which is what are my, what do I think it's leaving out? I mean, I think the biggest complicating factors right now for me and for a lot of people are, did it really come from Wuhan? Because in the New York article, this guy, Nicholson Baker, is very clear that this is a big key point for him. He says something like, what I keep going back to is it came from Wuhan and there's a big BSL-4 biological weapons, maybe, laboratory there. But there are a lot of studies. There's um, Lombardi, Italy. Um, There's a study tracing it back to September 2019 and shows that the strains there did not come directly from China. They're not the same 
ones that were circulating in China. And that one's a pretty good study because it's, it, well, it may be. It's based on antibody tests and it's based on blood samples that were collected for um, lung cancer screenings. Um, France, there's a, a, a study that traces the first patient back to mid-November 2019. And there was another study showing that the dominant strain in France did not come directly from China. Spain, and this one's kind of an outlier, has a study that um, there that coronavirus was circulating there as far back as March 2019, which would completely throw off every narrative that anybody has developed. That one, I think, maybe is not that strong because it's based on stool samples. And apparently the virus kind of breaks down as it goes through stool samples and degrades. So they're finding like little sections of the virus, but it it's, it's possible that it's not really, that it's kind of a false positive. Um, there's a Russian study that showed that only something like 2% of the samples they tested could be traced back to China. Uh, Brazil, it, it goes back to November, 2019. New York City, there was kind of a big study that the first cases there all were traced back to Europe and not to China. So, you know, none of that is totally conclusive. None of it really totally rules out that um, the, that it came from Wuhan. But it it it's important that there's not really a timeline that's been established yet. I guess that's one of the troubling parts about this, and and also one of the other things. I mean, I'll just say from my own perspective that seems to be missing from his article is if the premise is that this was a lab leak and that he believes that to be the case, then why is the sort of the framing that it's accidental, um, the, the sort of the prevailing narrative? I mean, why not examine the possibility that it was deliberate? Right. Because, you know, there are a lot of geopolitical things that have been put in motion as a result of this and I'm not saying that it was some kind of Machiavellian plot, you know, for someone to bring us to war with China. I would maybe think that more if there was like a much clearer propaganda track here going from the moment it hit our country to now in terms of like building us towards the belief that China hit us with some kind of biological weapon. But that's not really the narrative here. It's more like these crazy scientists who got overzealous almost like playing God with these viruses are trying to cover their own tracks for basically creating a global pandemic. I mean, yeah. am I getting sort of the tone of that narrative wrong that he's sort of trying to put out? No, there? I mean, I think one of the features has been that any, you know, from certainly for like the first six months of the pandemic, any suggestion that it came out of a lab was, was met really with a lot of virulent, you know, Hatred. I mean, it, it was really like there was a big effort to push back that narrative, any idea that it came out of a lab. And that was coming from, you know, U.S. mainstream media. I don't know exactly why that was. There was a really early letter that was published in The Lancet that was something like we stand in solidarity with the Chinese workers, medical workers. And we know that this wasn't didn't come from a lab. It definitely came from it was natural origin. What later came out is that that, la that letter was completely organized and written by Peter Dosick, the head of EcoHealth Alliance, which is, like I said, the main funder. And I'll, I'll mention, because this is interesting, one of the signatories is a guy named Charles Kalisher. 
And if you look this up, he was, there was a good um, old covert action uh, weekly article about this. He was almost certainly involved in a dengue fever attack on Cuba in the late 70s, early 80s, um, in unleashing dengue uh, on Cuba. I mean, he denies it uh, quite strongly, but it's, uh, I would say it's pretty likely that he was. So that, you know, that's kind of interesting too. Another thing that's happened with Dasik is that he, so the WHO has appointed a commission to go into China and investigate the origins of the virus. And the Lancet has also, Lancet's a big medical journal, has also organized a commission. The one person on both of those commissions is Peter Dasik head of EcoHealth Alliance, the guy who's funding this bat coronavirus research, um, not just in Wuhan, you know, in other places too. So that, that seems like, you know, it's hard, if you have any, any even modicum of yourself that believes there's a possibility that it came from a lab or that it specifically came from Wuhan, you know, Peter Dasik is absolutely not the person you would want on these committees. Yeah, I mean, it's just so strange um, to think that if this guy does have all these connections going back to him specifically in this company, why isn't he under more pressure to, you know, reveal information? I mean, I, I don't know. But, I mean, China's view, China has said that they don't believe that it necessarily came from Wuhan at all, that it, the pandemic did not necessarily start in Wuhan. And they have tried to point the finger back at the U.S. kind of in the same way as Trump, where they kind of half do it and pull yeah. it back. And, you know, they pointed to Fort Detrick at one point. They pointed to the Wuhan games, which yeah. was a pretty weird avenue of conspiracy that George Webb was really promoting there for a while. Interesting. Um, he had the, he identified a woman specifically who he said brought it over with, as far as I could tell, no evidence. I mean, it was Jesus. pretty. It was pretty bad. Um, I think she may be suing. <laughs> so, oh well. Um, you know, this is again kind of online thing, stuff that people have assembled. But in Fairfax County, right after that, shortly after that, there was a nursing home where like 54 people got sick with a respiratory disease. So this is certainly, you know, if you're looking into the U.S. as a possible vector for this instead of China. You know, is it possible it leaked out of Fort Detrick and it was then, you know, uh, kind of uh, framed up that that it came out of China as a way of covering that it came from Detrick? I think that's kind of the line some people are thinking about. Um, but some form of false attribution, you know, designed to make it look like it came from China. I mean, that that would make more sense to me if there was a more coordinated propaganda effort that followed this to try to blame it. I mean, but maybe yeah. it's just the very mere fact that it came from China w will be in some kind of just long-term sense, just bring more general heat down on China and it'll just create that pivot necessary you know, on the, in sort of the world community, you know, um, because I do think there's probably a lot more animosity that's just organically been generated just because this people believe this came from China, whether it le leaked from a lab or not. Yeah, that's kind of my view on it, that regardless of what the end result, if there ever is one, you know, comes out, I, I think in the back of 
most people's minds, China is somehow to blame. You know, they may not believe that it came from a lab at all, but somehow the fact that it came from China means that it's China's fault in some way. And I, I think that's kind of true with viruses in general, that there's a perception that where it originated, that somehow there's some faulty, you know, there's some kind of fault to be laid at the at the feet of, you know, just anywhere that it comes from originally. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely true. Um, And I guess, you know, I guess we'll just have to see where this goes because it does seem like, you know, the like I was saying, the far right really ran with this at first and then it kind of backed off from it. And then Steve Bannon and, you know, a few other people sort of brought it back, resurrected it. But like you said, they brought out, they trotted out that whistleblower who sort of has a totally different narrative. I noticed there's some other sort of, you know, the IDW people sort of brought it out in a more, in more this way. That like uh, Brent Weidenstein, I think, brought in Yuri Degen on his show, um, or or he he had somebody on that had pretty much the same sort of stuff to talk about. So, yeah, uh, you know, Eric Weinstein's been talking about how it's like taboo to talk about the lab leak theory. So it's definitely, you know, it's being picked up in little circles, but it's not really something that's had legs in sort of a wider sense. So I'm just really curious if that's going to be used in sort of this larger geopolitical game, because it really doesn't seem like it could be once you really start looking into any of the details about it. It's too bizarre and convoluted in terms of what players are actually involved. I mean, yeah. this wasn't a Chinese government top-down operation where the Chinese military was in control like the far right was trying to tell us when this first started when and their version of the lab leak theory. I remember reporting on that. Um, you know, back when Tom Cotton was one of the only guys swinging around about that. Yeah. Well, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with this Matthew Pottinger thing and if they have a whistleblower. And I think if they have anything really concrete on the Wuhan lab that they're going to run with, they are going to tie it into the the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm sure there's funding that, ha- you know, I'm sure Wuhan is a government funded laboratory. You know, that's the way most laboratories are to some extent they receive a ton of in in any country in anywhere in the world um but one one thing i wanted to mention is just one of the odd things that's happened and part of the reason that i think this narrative never took hold completely is that a lot of people there was a big turn especially in kind of right wing and just generally kind of conspiracy kind of global research type uh you know, sphere online that pandemic. Yes. Or no. That it yeah, okay. that it's that it's a pandemic, that really the virus isn't dangerous at all. Uh that it may not even be a real virus, or you know, there may be nothing, that they're overcounting the dead, that um, you know, it, it basically that it's it's just the flu, you know, the death rate's so low, it's it's really nothing to worry about. That's really what took hold a lot more for some reason and kind of got you know, attached to the more generically Trumpy um, anti-mask movement. There's a lot of people I don't trust, you know, in terms of who is pushing this. So it's hard for me to, um, you know, just know like which information I can trust. Um, so I, I like, you know, that you've been following this and you know a lot about what to look for in terms of what's not included in articles like that. Um, 
But this one does seem to be, in terms of your grading, if you were grading this in terms of like its accuracy and not deliberately creating some kind of limited hangout, it seems like you would, I don't know, you're giving it, it seems like you're giving it a fairly favorable grade, like above maybe a C or something. I, I don't know. What would yeah, you say? somewhere in the B range, I guess, because <laughs> um, I do I do like that it, it did put a lot of focus on um, Gossip and eco health, I think that's important. Um, it didn't really, you know, I kind of feel like the same way that when I talked about that Jeffrey K review of his book, I kind of came to the same like place that K did, where it's like, um, you know, he he kind of says, well, there's a lot of good information in the book, but I kind of fundamentally disagree with the conclusion it draws. With this one, I don't necessarily fundamentally disagree with the conclusion, but I like a lot of what's in there. But I'm not sure I'm I'm sold that he's he's thought about every angle uh, possible for this thing. And it's already, an ex, you know, really quite a long article. So, um, you know, there is only so much space and you can't throw out 10 different theories in an article like that. It, it kind of overwhelms people. But, um, you know, I, I do think I, I have to say, you know, I, I'm not somebody who <laughs> my first inclination would never be to like blame another country for something. Um, and I'm not, but, um, it, I would say that there is, does seem to be quite a bit of information now, at least pointing in the direction that Wuhan Institute of Virology could have been the source of it because of the kind of work they were doing and the, um, just the the close tie between if it could be established that it definitely came from Wuhan that it started in Wuhan then I would say the most likely scenario is absolutely that it came out of the lab and not that it came from some other you know the wet market has basically been disproven sure but the other just the only the flip side to that the only counter argument I would say to that is that um just from a layman's point of view, like it does, if we're sort of looking at which aspects of this narrative could be propaganda and which ones are actually true, um, you know, this idea of the bat cave, it does, it does, it's, it's a little spurious to me. Like I, I'm not convinced of that. I would have to see and understand more why that's, why that's believed to be the origin of it. And then additionally, I guess there was a part in his article that really did sort of get under my skin where he's kind of going into this um, idea of how he thinks the Chinese government covered up aspects of the investigation. Like he specifically brings up them blocking the road. Um, you know, there was a mysterious road blockage, a, a broken down truck in the road. Now, I mean, how hard is it to get around the road? I, I don't know. It, it just, things like that. I feel like it really needs to be separated from the politics. Um, so I'm, I guess those raise some red flags for me, but I mean, I largely agree with what you're saying. I think that um, if it did come from Wuhan, if there's a way to prove that, then yeah, that definitely needs to be uh, more closely examined. And then I also think it is just a little, I don't understand why it would just be this idea of accidental. Is he sort of playing politics here? Does he believe that the community of virologists who might have information will come forward if he creates this sort of dialogue about it being accidental versus deliberate because 
you know, I, I guess I see that equally as a possibility that this was a deliberate uh, release of some kind by someone. Um, yeah. So if we're looking at that, so I guess that's, those are my only two main sticking points. In, yeah. um, and, and I think it's a, it's a kind of hard bridge for a lot of people to cross to, to think that it was a deliberate release. You know, there's something, you know, easier to believe. And, and there is a lot of, and he put some of this in the article. There is a lot of history of lab breaches and lab leaks. I mean, SARS one actually leaked out like two or three times um, yeah. throughout the two thousands. So in there's there, precedent for this. Yeah. And there, there's an article from the bulletin of atomic scientists or whatever it's called. And, um, this woman had estimated that basically given the number of, of, um, uh, viruses being done in these labs and how many labs there are and the number of lab leaks, she basically calculated that it was like an 80% chance that one would leak out over a five year period or something like that. So basically it's like a, yeah. it's almost a given that this is going to happen somewhere at some time. Now it does, you know, one, <laughs> one thing you might wonder is like, this is kind of geopolitically the most, um, you know, touchy place for it to have leaked out is, is right in the middle of China. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, if you're playing coincidence theory, you know, you may think, well, is that purely a coincidence? So, you know. Yeah, I mean you could ask a lot of questions like that about this whole scenario. I mean, you, even the way Trump talks, he does these funny little hinting uh, phrases where he'll be like, you know, I was doing great. The economy was doing great. And then suddenly, you know, I don't know what happened, but uh, yeah. you know, this thing came from China, the China virus. And then, uh, you know, it perfectly, uh, he sort of like talks about it as if it was all set up to ruin him. That's how he <laughs> sees it, you know? Um, or how, how whatever. World, so. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just funny that he even sort of g gravitates towards in in that direction in terms of like a deliberate release. Like he's going for that framing to sort of make it seem like it's about him. Yeah, and he um, at least at some point called it an attack. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's called it that, and he even said it's like you know, nine eleven was bad, Pearl Harbor was bad. This is worse, or something like that. So he's very sure. much putting it in that framework of this was an attack. Yeah, so I guess we'll have to be really uh, sort of observant of where, like, the Biden era takes this paradigm. Yeah, that's um, what I'm kind of afraid of, is that, you know, Trump can say it came out of a lab and basically people will dismiss it because it's Trump. If the Biden administration starts talking like that and, you know, start, especially if they start hinting that there was any idea that it was deliberate, I mean, I don't necessarily foresee that, but if they did, that would be a pretty bad geopolitical position to be in because you know of course that's i think we're already in kind of a quasi new cold war with china and that's gonna just really ramp it up into you know there, there's no returning from from that if they if they really try to pin it directly on china in some way that you know it's like an accusation yeah that's why i really discourage people you know playing into this a lot of the hyperbole we see here in the media about china that we just simply you know unverifiable stuff a lot of the time will float around social media i mean oh, yeah. i'm not going to defend what the china what, what china is doing with the uyghurs i'm not going to you know pontificate 
um, about how they're all terrorists and how it makes sense why China would be locking yeah. them up. I find that very distasteful the way people engage with that. I just look at it from the angle of just let's try to avoid things that we, you know, just like use common sense. Like when you see a picture of a Chinese guy or a guy, you don't even know if he's Chinese or not, just looks Asian in some kind of weird torture contraption uh, with someone above him talking to him with no context or whatever from some we are change person, don't automatically believe that that is an actual uh video footage of a Chinese prison interrogation because it turned out that that was from a porn video. It wasn't even, you know, so stuff like that, it, it, like someone was actually doing this during the, the California fire, showing videos of what appeared to be Chinese military operations, uh, pl uh, sh basically dropping firebombs down on forests below from airplanes. And it was like footage of some controlled burn from somewhere. But it was like, this is really... You know, this is really sort of, I think this has become part of the mix, and it almost does have a QAnon flavor to it. And that's another way I think QAnon can be used as a vehicle is just totally insidious, but also insane propaganda about China that really takes hold. Like this, you saw that thing probably about the secret, um, uh, the, the, the bunker, the Chinese bunker where 50,000 Chinese troops were blown up under Michigan. Uh, there no, was an earthquake. Oh yeah, QAnon thought that there was a secret hot war going on with China yeah. under a bunker in Michigan because there was an earthquake detected in Canada, <laughs> and it it went really really viral. So they're already yeah. going in these wild places. The Daily Mail is always pushing weird, you know, hard to believe stories about China, and even like Zero Hedge seems to have a really oh, big yeah. influence now in this direction. And so that's what that's why I really. I want to encourage people to really just look, examine that stuff and make sure you're not just repeating some kind of propaganda about a foreign country, essentially. I mean, well, you, you mentioned the daily mail. There was one thing I, I, I should squeeze in here, uh, given our shared interests. Uh, so the mail on Sunday released an article on Sunday, this past Sunday, um, that was, um, had a lot of the same information that's in the Baker article, um, but was specifically fo focused on Peter Dosick. And what they reported was that he had had white powder sent to his home. And so I had not seen that anywhere. I looked it up and there is one, uh, there was a news report about it from like the local news station in the Bronx, which he lived somewhere north of the Bronx. And it's so bizarre because not only did he have this report, you know, report that he had been sent an envelope containing white powder. Um, and the police were called out and there were people in hazmat suits and everything. The next day, the news team came and showed up at his house. He refused to talk to the reporter. The reporter goes to the neighbor's house. And the I guess kind of because of COVID, the cameraman is like filming from the sidewalk as she's trying to ask some questions to the neighbors. Just like, you know, did you see the police out here? And he comes up and assaults the camera. <laughs> like, tears out at the camera oh, and wow. tells him to stop filming. Yeah. So very bizarre, very bizarre incident that, like I said, had not really been reported. It hadn't gotten picked up at all uh, outside of that one little local news article, uh, no, local news report. So but the daily mail mentioned it. So yeah, mail on Sunday picked up on it and put it in there. Um, or no, sorry, this wasn't the daily mail. I, I totally got that wrong. It was the times on Sunday. He reported that he got an envelope filled with white powder. So I don't know what 
in the world that would mean or what direction that would lead you in or where it would possibly have come from. But there do appear to be a lot of, you know, outside of what we were talking about with kind of university affiliated labs and whatever work they're doing in Wuhan Institute of Virology, there are Pentagon-run labs all throughout the world. There's in probably 25 different countries, the U.S. is running these bio labs. Um, there's been some reporting and some narratives that kind of came from the Russian government about this one in Georgia and possibly being linked to um, kind of a tularemia or no, a Congo Crimean hemorrhagic fever outbreak that killed some people and it, it locally right around the lab. And one thing that's interesting about it and another just like maybe a teaser for another avenue to explore with COVID is they have also been doing apparently bat coronavirus research at that lab in Georgia and collecting bats Wild. from caves and bringing them there and doing uh, who knows what. And unlike these university affiliated labs or even Wuhan Institute of Virology, it's a complete black box. We have no idea really what's going on. Uh, inside a lot of these labs. So. Crazy stuff. Um, we, the world is getting very weird. I mean, even just knowing that this concept of gain of function research exists and, and uh, you know, just doing a little reading about it is, is quite, is quite shocking to be yeah. honest. Um, and uh, I think, I don't know if it's you who brought it up, but it does make sense that the U.S. would be doing sketchy bio uh, weapons research in places that can circumvent essentially U.S. law. Mm -hmm. um, that that's something that the U.S. has done regularly in various ways. You know, whether it be rendition or and and doing it in a way that appears to kind of threaten other countries. Because if you look at this map of these where these bio labs are located, they're all like on countries that border Russia and China and Iran as well as a lot in Africa, actually, too. So there's definitely a, a, what I've what I've always, what I've come to think about this bioweapons program is that the U.S. doesn't acknowledge it. Robert Cadlick has specifically said we don't have a, a bioweapons program. But they kind of want other countries to know that they do because it's a threat. And um, I, I think there's more to explore there about what the the U.S. is doing kind of all throughout the world with their own bio, uh, bio labs. This concludes our first discussion with Gumby for Christ. It was recorded before inauguration. And now I'm going to play the discussion I had with Gumby for Christ about five days ago going through all the different narratives that have come out since I last spoke to him and all the different narratives that sort of followed with the WHO investigation that took place in China since I last spoke to Gummy for Christ. But I start by asking him to sort of comment on some recent spin that's coming out in the media about China. I wanted to go back and just sort of comb through some of the main stories that have been circulating around for the past month and a half. And some of these we've already spoken about, you know, in private messages back and forth, but other ones we haven't necessarily spoken about. But in general, 
you know, there's a new wave. When I say new wave, uh, it's just sort of ramping up even more. I would say it's not new. It's the pressure has been turned up since uh, the beginning of COVID with what we're seeing in the media in terms of uh, anti-China sentiment or things that, you know, feel propagandistically adversarial towards China or showing them in a bad light. There's this sort of new wave of it happening, but there's been, you know, few new things that have sort of added to the narrative in the last month or so. But these are also sort of circulating at the same time as uh, stories, some of them quite in-depth, about potential lab leak uh, theories, hypothesis about where COVID came from. Now, you know, one, so what I'd like to do here is sort of parse through, you know, what you believe, or, and I'll share my thoughts as well, of what is from the last month or so good faith uh, examinations of this and also sort of bad faith anti-China propaganda that may be sort of spurious. Is it coming from think tanks? Where, you know, So like there, we need to parse through and sort of separate the two from each other. So I guess I'll just start with something that's a little more ambiguous. Um, the, the Frontline documentary um, called China's COVID Secrets. It largely focuses on the premise that China withheld information about the initial outbreak, letting it um, escape the country. You know, there is, uh, there's other things in there about the whistleblower scientist who died from COVID, who was apparently the guy that was trying to get the word out uh, that China, I, I, I guess, arrested. Maybe you can shed some more light on that. But, I mean, Gumby, what were your sort of uh, takeaways from just watching this documentary? Because, you know, I know we've already discussed the issues with the WHO uh, that you have, and we're going to get into those later. But what were just in general things that sort of stood out to you in that documentary? Yeah, I, I would say probably the the main kind of gist of it or bottom line message that it that it was trying to get at is I think what it's trying to do and what a, a lot of things have focused on before then, since then, and probably will continue, is that this idea that China was lying about um, human-to-human transmission and that they were trying to hide that there was human-to-human transmission and there was a lot of obfuscation at the beginning around um, you know, the cases that were coming out. Maybe it, it heavily implies that China may have been hiding cases, that there may have been deaths that happened that China was hiding. And it doesn't exactly go into specifics related to that, but there has been some other reporting or allegations from the U.S. government that have kind of, I guess, are are in a way corroborating this idea that the timeline goes back a lot further, probably to sometime in the fall is when it really began in Wuhan, that it was circulating for a long time, that China knew at some point, it's not really clear. according to these kind of reports, and uh, that people were spreading it to each other, that they weren't all getting it from, say, the wet market or whatever. And I think that that was kind of the main takeaway for me in terms of what this was trying to get at. Um, it's done in a very, I mean, it's done very slickly. You know, frontline documentaries usually are, but it has this kind of like pulsing music to it. It's played kind of like a thriller uh, vibe to the whole thing. And I think what they're really, you know, they're really trying to get at this idea that China, through its actions in those early, um, 
you know, the early month, first month, month and a half of the uh, pandemic obfuscated and hid things. And that's why it's everywhere around the world. And that that's really what it all comes back to. And in a way, I think it was trying to let the WHO off the hook or something because there's a there's a spokeswoman or uh, uh, on the board of the WHO. I'm not sure exactly what her position is. I think her name's Kirkov, and she's on there. And it's kind of odd because she's saying we know there's human to human transmission. Of course, there's human to human transmission because it's a virus. And the question is, to what extent was there human to human transmission? And kind of implies that she was trying to get some information out. It kind of focuses on a few different parties. Um, for example, the whistleblower you mentioned, Lee Wen Yang, um, who that was kind of a big story. One of the first big stories, I think, that was heavily critical of China that came out from the whole pandemic. Um, it also focuses on some other kind of good guys and bad guys. It really sets up these guys. Um, Edward Holmes, I think is his name, and this other guy, Zhang, who were the first ones to um, sequence, the uh, sequence, sequence the virus and get it published. Um, so, you know, it, and the way it sets them up is that they're these kind of little guys trying to get this information out under, from under China's big umbrella that's... Um, closing around, you know, was trying to close off any information flows um, about the virus. So, I mean, I, I think that was kind of the main sort of gist of it. I, I wouldn't say, I mean, it's not exactly focused on COVID origins, which is, I guess, the, the thing that I've personally looked into the most. Um, it's not really trying to tell you where it came from or if it came from the wet market or if it came from somewhere else. I don't know that the the documentary really has any point of view on that, but it um, it's definitely trying to set up China as having basically lied for a month, and and because of that, that's why you know we're all dealing with this pandemic still a year later. Yeah, I mean, it did. I think it even did try to imply that China was like trying to block off access to the wet markets or like get like like hide things about it and stuff like that. So. It was, I think that's as far as it got in terms of the origin. It didn't question, it didn't really question anything like that. I think there is, there is a part where it clarifies that the wet market was the first suspect and it, it has Peter Daszak on there talking about that. Of course, it, like so much reporting, it doesn't really identify who Peter Daszak is and why he has a relationship to Wuhan. Yeah. It does at one point kind of say, yeah, the, the wet market was thought to be the origin. And then at some point it kind of transitions and says, well, when we, when the, when China finally released a paper uh, talking about the first cases, it was clear that there was no epidemiological link between the very first case and this cluster of cases that came out of the wet market. In other words, it must've been, well, from their point of view, it must've been circulating beforehand. Now there's another possibility which they don't really go into which is that there were it was introduced to China or introduced to Wuhan from somewhere else in China and from multiple sources which is what we've seen in a lot of other cities where there's not necessarily an epidemiological link between every single case uh, out of the first say 100 cases in a city some of them may have come directly from China 
Some come from a different strain from Europe. Um, you know, so there, there, there is an alternative explanation, I think, to what they're presenting in the documentary, which is China was just trying to hide that there was human-to-human transmission going on all around Wuhan. There's been a lot of other, you know, of the similar anti-China stuff that we've already been seeing in the media in the last month or so. Um, there are new reports about the Uyghurs, which are, which one of them in particular, a rather detailed one, is leaning on um, a witness uh, who I guess was in one of these camps or these prisons, and she's describing things in a much more hyperbolic way than she had described them in a previous interview, the same person. So I find that a little interesting, and I, and I wish I had the article up in front of me now. I can't remember where it was from, uh, but I saw it circulating a lot online. Um, Ilan Omar of the squad um, says we need to do something, implying some kind of punishment or sanctions for China over the Uyghur situation. And, and I've she's barely spoken about Guantanamo Bay, uh, which we, you know, we've spoken about that endlessly on Media Roots Radio. People already understand the implications of what that is. So I want to go into the sort of the conspiracy scenes coverage of this later. But in general, I've already seen, you know, stuff even about the Uyghurs floating around in some of these far right sort of conspiracy friendly circles. I've seen one story in particular, maybe you saw this one, about Chinese super soldiers uh, that were being, um, I guess, manufactured with DNA splicing. Zero Hedge uh, was actually posting this article and it was an aggregation of an article from the Gate Stone Institute by Gordon Chang, um, who is a notorious, probably one of the most prolific anti-China neocons out there right now going on media. Um, and of course, Gate Stone Institute was co-founded by John Bolton. So I don't know. What do you think about that, Gumby, that just that stuff, we're seeing more of that stuff blasting out. I mean, like, where does your have you seen any other stuff that I've missed well, d- there's definitely uh, the Uyghur rhetoric is ramping up quite a bit. I mean, one of the last things the I guess it was the Pompeo State Department did, like literally it was something like three days before Trump left office, something something crazy like that. They classified the Uyghur situation as a quote unquote genocide, which, you know, I, I mean, I've looked a little bit into the Uyghur situation. I don't want to say that China is doing nothing wrong there. I think we have not a lot of information. And some of that may be due to China not wanting people to know exactly what's going on there because it would be damned or whatever. It would certainly be weaponized for rhetorical advantage by, you know, the likes of the U.S. State Department. But the point is, um, you know, I don't think even the, the worst allegations of what's going on there, I'm not sure, would rise to the level of, of a genocide. In other words, the attempted extermination of the entire Uyghur people. Um, so it, it, it's certainly a, it, a, a huge escalation of that rhetoric. And what's interesting is that that, that came, I believe, from the, the State Department about a week probably before that or right around the same time when everybody was pretty much focused on the Trump, um, I mean, the January 6th events, um, the uh, Pompeo State Department released a fact sheet, what they called a fact sheet, I would put that in air quotes, um, about activity at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which I don't know exactly how these things get disseminated, but it's basically an official 
statement from the state from the um the state department that's posted on several embassy websites still including the u.s embassy in georgia i know it's on there because that's a, a little strange that georgia feels like a random country except that uh, Georgia has been the target of a lot of Russian rhetoric accusing the United States of running a bioweapons lab in Tbilisi. There's been some reporting on that, and I tend to think there is some validity to, you know, some of those accusations. But regardless, um, I think the Uyghur thing ties into the COVID origin thing because this fact sheet was probably the most striking and forthright example of trying to paint the Wuhan Institute of Virology as a military weapons laboratory, a bioweapons program uh, that China is running. Um, and it had some specific allegations that I don't think that I haven't seen any corroboration for outside of simply statements from the U.S. and intelligence services. For example, this fact sheet goes into this idea that actually back in autumn 2019, the gov U.S. government has reason to believe that several researchers inside the WIV became sick um, well before the first identified case of the outbreak and that they had symptoms consistent with COVID-19 and, um, you know, basically strongly suggesting that somebody at Wuhan Institute of Virology got sick and this is the origin from their own probably bioweapon is what's implied here, and spread that out to, uh, you know, the city of Wuhan and there, from there, uh, you know, the rest of the world. And the fact sheet also goes into RATG-13, which we've talked about, which is 96% similar to SARS-CoV-2, and um, talks about that as being, you know, evidence that they're doing gain-of-function research, that they're uh, weaponizing viruses, uh, trying to create SARS-like viruses. They go into the minor story. But do they mention even – do they mention DASIC or any of the specific people or EcoHealth Alliance or any of the American stuff? No, 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 no. Are they specific <laughs> with any of the – <laughs> are any Chinese officials in there? Or is it rather vague in that she, department as well? Xi Li is mentioned, um, the – you know, the, the most famous uh, SARS researcher at, at uh, WIV. Um, she's mentioned ma mainly to kind of question a claim that she made that there was zero infection of SARS-CoV-2 among the WIV staff. And they're saying, no, we have information. We have intelligence, U.S. intelligence, that there was. Um, nobody else is mentioned specifically. They, they do dispute that WIV is really a civilian institution. They say it's run by the Chinese military. Certainly there's no, absolutely no mention in this fact sheet that the EcoHealth Alliance is funding this work. Much of the most troubling gain-of-function work that WIV was associated, really most of the actual viral cloning and genetic manipulation the, the most troubling examples that I've seen, including this 2015 paper that became very um, notorious, was really done at the University of North Carolina at the Barrick Lab run by this guy, Ralph Barrick, whose basically whole um, existence for the past 20 years has been about weaponing um, coronaviruses. And I mean, he would call it that. He would say he's doing research to study how they could spread and cause a pandemic and all this stuff. But um, what he's the actual meat of the work that he's involved with is 
is um, trying to make them more virulent, more transmissible, all of that kind of thing. So yeah, this this is what's really unusual, and and even RATG thirteen itself, that collection of that seems to be directly related to Eco Health Alliance. So the the virus that was most like or that we know of is most like SARS CoV two came from collection at this mine where these miners came down sick. There is there's some indication that Eco Health may have even been the ones. The reason that they were shoveling all of this back guano in this cave in Mojang is because EcoHealth was collecting viral samples. And so yeah. they were shoveling back guano, collecting it, bringing it to Wuhan Institute of Virology in order to get lots and lots of SARS like coronavirus samples. Okay. That's not the official story, but, I, you know, uh, that there is some allegation that that even from the very beginning, basically, uh, Eco Health Alliance is the one who would be behind the, basically at the very start of the entire story. Got it. So just really quick, I mean, I guess the point that I just want to drive home is that it does seem strange that the State Department would put out this fact sheet that you're talking about that does seem spiked to a certain extent. They're making allegations that, you know, you don't know where they're coming from, some of them, um, but that they don't lead them specifically to any entities they keep it vague i'm just wondering what purpose does this serve why why would they put this out there do they want people or do they want people to you know maybe look in like get into some of these rabbit holes and look into people like uh dazic and eco health alliance because you so i guess that that brings into question the new york mag article did talk about some of this stuff. I th believe it did. Now, we already discussed yes. to a large extent what was in that article, but there were some other articles that have come out. Now, I want to just contrast them because you characterize one of them as actually fairly credible, even though it's in the Wall Street Journal. So I'm, you know, I was a little hesitant about it. Unfortunately, I couldn't actually find it because it was uh, behind a paywall. I still couldn't figure out how to log in and read it. So I don't know what what you managed to gather from it, but the the author of it, Alina Chen, um, had a pretty detailed thread about what was in that. But contrasting that article uh, with their another fairly aggressive um, Washington Post article, or sorry, editorial, um, where it was sort of implying that you know we need to aggressively uh, make look into this Wuhan lab more. I think it was that was sort of the implication of that editorial. Uh, I don't know, contrast these two articles with each other and what you thought of each one. Elena Chan wrote two articles, one with, and both, unfortunately, on sites that are heavily paywalled. So one was on the Wall Street Journal and the other was um, Telegraph. Forget, I think Telegraph, yeah. right, in the Telegraph. And um, I was able to get, uh, well, the Wall Street Journal I was able to get access to and then the Telegraph, I think I found most of it, but it was kind of through doing some searching. So I didn't actually read like front to back. The point is, uh, those, Alina Chan has been kind of one of the first, I would say, skeptics, one of the people out there, leave, at least the way she would phrase it is always kind of leaving open the possibility of a lab origin and that this is something that needs to be investigated. 
she's extremely cautious in everything she says, everything she puts on Twitter, and she she tweets a lot about this. Um, she's affiliated with MIT. She's a microbiologist, and um, she has been attacked by the kind of other wing of the the scientific establishment that's more affiliated with the Dossicks and Barracks of the world, um, who are you know completely say absolutely no to lab origin. That's a conspiracy theory. You're crazy. Alina Chan has tried to navigate this very um, this middle ground position where um, she's not saying it, it came from a lab. She's not saying it came from nature. She thinks everything needs to be investigated. And um, the two articles she had were kind of summary type articles, and they were really timed to match up with the WHO committee uh, thing. And they, they did a pretty good job, I think, of laying out what the evidence, what the fairly well-supported evidence is that there could be a lab leak or some kind of lab origin. Um, the the Washington Post article, I don't have it in front of me, and I'm struggling to remember exactly what was in it, but that was basically just kind of a opinion sort of, you know, the WHO committee is 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 bunk and nothing's going to come of it type of story, right? Yeah. So it's it's been a while, so I wouldn't want to say too much. I mean, I do think the WHO committee, personally, I would say it is heavily compromised because of the involvement of Peter Dasik. Um, Yeah, so Alina Chan, and so Alina Chan is, she's not really anti-China, I wouldn't say, although she has said things that are probably a little bit more play into State Department type talking points, certainly more than I would. But that doesn't seem to be what's driving her, yeah. from what I can tell. Um, she actually was the she was kind of featured in this Boston Magazine article that came out probably in like October of last year, October 2020. And that was the first really mainstream media type article giving a lot of voice to the possibility of a lab leak. And then a lot of those points were picked up and the Nicholson Baker article was even bigger and even bigger publication, a bigger writer. And, and he mentions Alina Chan in his article as well. Um, so, you know, as far as you asked about, you know, who, who is coming from a place of, I don't know, propagandizing and who's coming from a place of just trying to understand what's going on. My sense is that Alina Chan is. Now, I did listen to an interview with her that she gave to a podcast called The Unspeakable or something. I can't, I don't even know what the podcast was, but she was on it with this other woman who occupies a somewhat similar middle ground named Philippa Lempsos. And I, I don't know a lot about her background, but she made a lot of statements on that podcast that I would, I would take major issue with, like, talking about how China is is borrowing Russian-type disinfo operations. And she said after that that the U.S. has no disinfo operation, you know, which is something that is just like an immediate, you know, like, I don't know, gut punch to me. Where I'll give like, her the benefit of the, the doubt a, and say that she's maybe just in a bubble. You know, she's like one of those Beltway people who's yeah. so just surrounded by. Yeah. I mean, like you, the, you know what it's like there. Like, I mean, you throw a rock yeah. in any restaurant or bar and you hit like, you know, 10 congressional staffers or people who like work 
somehow in government. You know, it's like everybody. I I I don't know anything about her. I mean, I'm sure if I saw some of her stuff, it would probably set off my sus radars. But I, it, that happens to me with almost anyone. Yeah, and and I don't know that that's what's driving her because she really comes from. I I did rem- remember that she's she's based in London, I think, and she is um, uh, kind of has uh, a history of talking about biological threats and things like that. I think she's maybe affiliated with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, sure. which has had some articles about some really good articles about how there have been a lot of lab leaks. So it's not uncommon the way it was presented in the media, you know, a year ago. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. I don't know that she's necessarily coming from that point of view, but she's definitely coming from kind of a, you know, China is the bad guy framework in a way that Alina Chan, I don't think, is quite coming from it that way. She's more neutral yeah, um, in terms of her views. So, Well, it's kind of besides the um, point because I just I mean, what it sounds like is it just reinforces and sort of carries the same thread from that NY Mag article, which was which did sort of bring more new information to the table and was fairly uh, even handed and thorough, you know, by your estimates. I mean, there was a few, there's a few issues with it, but yeah, there are definitely things I would take issue with in the New York mag article. I kind of revisited part of it and some of the, some of the way it talks about the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the way that it used this RATG 13 a sample that it collected, I think is, and I think this feeds into that State Department message too. I, I don't think it's quite right because it's talking about, basically Nicholson Baker makes it sound like, well, they have this bat guano sample in a fridge and they keep pulling it out every once in a while and doing something to it. Yeah. Whereas it, they did sequence it, but then that's kind of it as far as we know. And from what you can tell, at least reading through the line, reading between the lines of the the studies that are out there that Wuhan Institute of Virology is like affiliated with, it doesn't seem like they were, you know, I, I don't know, uh, doing much to the virus in terms of like the work right there. I mean, it's possible they were, but I guess the point pulling back out of it for a little bit, the the point to me is once you have a genomic sequence. Any lab with the right equipment can basically essentially print off the sequence and and sequence the virus and create a new sample. And that, I mean, that's exactly what happened with SARS-CoV-2. Ralph Barrick's lab sequenced it. We don't know. I don't think we know exactly when, but there was a Swiss lab that sequenced it basically within a week of getting the genomic sequence, according to them. So it's it once you have the gen- genomic sequence of any virus, any lab with the right equipment, and there aren't that many of them, but they're, they are all around the world, can produce the exact same virus. And, and this is a kind of point that I don't think a lot of people are really talking about or touching because it sort of uh, problematizes the whole narrative. Because once you have it where a virus can literally be printed any, you know, any one of these locations, and I'm sure there are more because um, the U.S. backs um, biolabs all around the world, and I don't think we know exactly what technologies and capabilities they have. Um, But once you add that into the mix, I mean, the virus really could 
assuming you could get somebody had gotten a genomic sequence and shared it secretly. I mean, the, the virus could literally have come from anywhere or could be, you know, deliberately released from anywhere if you were trying to follow down the path of what, you know, the, the kind of possibilities are. And I, I know it kind of strayed a lot from, <laughs> from what, was, what was in the Nicholson-Baker piece, but I guess this is kind of a larger point I've been thinking about, you know, over the past week or two that I don't think is really touched on really much of anywhere in terms of these kind of main, more mainstream articles. Even a lot of the alternative media articles, I don't think, have really explored fully this idea that um, – you know, the, the labs that, for example, the work we know they were doing, Wuhan Institute of Virology collected a sample, they maybe sequenced it, and then basically they just send the sequence to North Carolina, and then North Carolina prints off their own version of the virus and starts manipulating it and doing all their work. I mean, that's certainly what the 2015 um, paper where they were doing, uh, making a highly transmissible SARS-like virus was all about, so... Let's get into this um, WHO investigation that recently happened. There was a New York Times article essentially saying that China refused to hand over data to the WHO. But the guy who came out the loudest and most aggressively against these claims, um, who I even saw a lot of uh, sort of anti-imperialist posting. I follow a lot of sort of the China, you know, the the people who watch sort of the anti-China propaganda who are from anti-imperialism. Mm -hmm. The guy who was the most aggressively disputing this New York Times article was Peter Daszak uh, on social media, and his disputes with it um, that that the WHO, you know, uh, was refused data from China uh, went viral even among anti-imperialists. I knew, so when I saw his name going around, I was thinking, you know, obviously I'm skeptical of this idea that China didn't give data to the WHO just on its face. And, and sort of the, the lack of context there, like I'd want to know more about what that means. And then I was immediately skeptical because of our discussions about Peter Daszak and his involvement with, and I, is the name of the company EcoHealth Alliance? Yeah, that, it's a non, uh, non-profit organization. There's a few things that have been floating around from that WHO investigation. There's that New York Times article uh, that seemed to sort of create this little storm on social media with people pushing against it, but mostly people spreading Dozik's quotes pushing against it. And then you have this idea that the WHO is controlled by China. You should sort of have this going in the background, and then that's been the climate more or less since the pandemic, and people believe that to be the case. But then you also have these claims coming out. I saw Gordon Chang going out there saying that 92 uh, Chinese citizens had virus-like symptoms in October of uh, 2019 that had COVID virus-like symptoms that the WHO identified in their investigation. I, I guess first going to that, have you heard that claim? Is Gordon Chang uh, taking something completely out of context, cherry-picking that? Or is that actually what the WHO found? What do you think that means? And then also, Peter Daszak, why haven't more people been trying to ask him these questions? Like, what is his, I, and then maybe also like, what is his last question uh, or what was his last answer when asked about this lab leak theory? Like, is he just still outright deny it, say it's not possible? Like, what, what, what is his attitude on it now when asked? And how come there's not more people trying to ask him about this and trying to put pressure on him? 
as far as the 90 patients go, the, so the WHO has not actually released a report. They did a couple oh, they didn't. press conferences. Okay. They will, but the, it hasn't been released yet. So okay. it, it's hard to know exactly what they're going to say. I can go into what they're kind of uh, top line things that they've been saying in these press conferences are. Well, yeah. Well, um, first, I guess minute. first, just maybe address this idea, because I don't know if we really addressed it in what we already discussed, but this idea that uh, the WHO is somehow controlled politically by China. And I guess put that in context. I mean, because obviously China yeah. is funding it to a large degree. There's probably, you know, there's a great deal of influence, I'm sure. But there does seem to be some missing context there. I mean, there's other players here that, you know, like we've been talking about, the WIV is not just some kind of Chinese government military lab. It is, it has all these American and international projects who are involved with the U.S. biodefense industry. So I don't know, comment on that, some of that context and then sort of go from there about what else we sure. talked about. Yeah, I mean, to me, the that kind of commentary, it just kind of misses the... I don't know. It, I mean, it misses the context of what the WHO is and what all of these things are. You know, when there was when they were trying to set up this joint investigative team or whatever it was called to investigate the MH17 uh, plane that was shot down. You know, there's an enormous push and pull from all parties to try to get the most advantage and get their, you know, what they want, what outcome they want as much as possible out of that. It's the same with the OPCW. It's the same with the UN. You know, all of these organizations are extremely precariously balanced because they're trying to tiptoe around all of the the um, the beefs, big and small, between all of these um, state players. So this WHO committee is no different. If the outbreak had, you know, certainly if the outbreak had started in and everybody thought the outbreak had started in Frederick, Maryland, you know, where Fort Detrick is, uh, the U.S. Would, would be doing the exact same thing, even if they had no reason to believe that Fort Detrick was actually the source of the, the virus or whatever. So, you know, there, th that kind of commentary is, it, it doesn't mean a lot to me because, you know, all of, yes, it is kind of controlled by China, but it's also controlled by the U.S. and it's controlled by Europe. And all, all of these different players are have a heavy hand in trying to manipulate what goes on there. I mean, from a personal point of view, I mean, I do think the WHO committee was kind of set up in a way to to bring an outcome that would be very non-controversial and would not be explosive to international relations. I mean, I think that is pretty obvious. I think Dasik was put on there because he does act as this bridge between China and the United States, and he is deeply involved. So he's able to, you know, manipulate evidence or at least to sway evidence in, in, in a particular way to reach a particular narrative. So, I mean, as far as the committee goes, so here, here's what happened with the committee. So they went over uh, sometime in early, in early uh, January and they came back in February and they gave a couple press conferences and there really wasn't a lot of huge news. What they said is we still don't know where the virus came from and, uh, you know, it needs further study. They said bats were a probable source of the transmission, but there was probably an intermediary species, which we don't know what it was. 
they talked about the um Huanan uh wet market, the seafood market, which it you know, I there was some color on this that came from Frontline and a few other places, but that wasn't it's portrayed as this place where like bats are being cut up and dogs are being skinned alive and stuff like this. It was like 90% a frozen seafood market. And then they did have some other live animals. Like uh, I think there was some kind of ferret and some kind of other animal, which the WHO is kind of nudging and pointing and saying, hey, maybe it came from a bat into a ferret uh, and then into a human being, that kind of thing. Um, what they did say is they said lab origin was extremely unlikely. But then the WHO director general came out a couple of days after that and seemed to kind of walk that back and said something like all hypotheses remain open and require further analysis and study. That's the quote I have in front of me. Um, and then a lot of the way it's played out since there's not actually a report has been through the media. And so there was a guy named Dominic Dwyer, who is the Australian member on the committee, and he gave some quotes that at least could be read as saying that China had a lot of political pressure. What he said is actually the Chinese officials have more pressure on them than the WHO, than his team had on themselves. In other words, the Chinese officials are trying to walk this tight line because they don't want the government to get mad at them. And so that's why they're afraid maybe to hand over information that the WHO had requested. Um, and Dominic, uh, sorry, and um, then Peter Dosick has been kind of on the opposite end, really hammering the um, uh, hammering that China fully cooperated. Basically, they got everything they wanted, and that um, you know that they were perfect hosts, and you know there's nothing to worry about. So there's not really. So and then the other thing that was kind of important that came out is that the WHO committee did leave open this idea, which had been pretty much dismissed everywhere except China, that the virus might have actually come from a piece of tainted frozen meat or the frozen seafood. Because apparently back last June, China had locked down completely. And they had um, basically eradicated the virus more or less inside China's borders from this, you know, very strong lockdown. Well, then some cases started popping up in Beijing in June, and they traced it back to, apparently, to some tainted frozen salmon. And what they said is that the virus can live, I guess because it's cold enough, the virus can live on the salmon, and then you either breathe it in or you eat the salmon and you get it. I'm not sure exactly how the transmission is supposed to work. And so from that, some Chinese officials, particularly their CDC officials, started saying, you know, we don't really think it necessarily started in Wuhan. We think if there was a big outbreak in Wuhan that we noticed, it was because it came in through some frozen seafood. And so this had been really kind of laughed at among like the U.S. who would certainly, you know, any of the researchers or whoever, the serious people in this kind of laughed at it. And the WHO committee said, no, we actually think this is a possibility. We don't necessarily think it's the strongest possibility, but we're leaving that door open. And they seem to leave that door open more than they were leaving in any kind of, you know, lab origin theory at all. Um, so, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of like 
there wasn't really like a conclusion that they came to from any of this. Um, the U.S. responded, and this is all coming from now the Biden State Department. So we've seen that the Trump State Department was, you know, uh, in, in its final days, very much trying to bash China on this point. The U.S. is now kind of doing the same. The State Department said uh, basically that we're, you know, we take whatever the WHO says seriously, but we're trying to verify it and we're analyzing it by our own intelligence community. And mention specifically, because this is an important point uh, really quick about this continuity between this. Um, this is one thing I actually kind of thought would happen that's obviously not happening, which is some kind of uh, diplomatic reset on some level with China. Uh, in the United States, sort of like how the Obama administration, you know, tried to do or act like they were going to do with Russia at the beginning of their yeah, administration. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, it seems like there's definitely some continuity in the sense that, um, you know, it's already an alarming sign. And I'm not saying that the WHO is some kind of infallible entity, but it's already an alarming sign to see people even like Jake Sullivan, um, who was actually making some of these comments about the WHO. Can, was he the one who specifically said those comments or who, who said what you just so read? There were, there were some uh, articles that quoted, I, I forget who it was. It may have just been a state department official press release or something, but then Jake Sullivan also released his own quotes to, um, I, I saw him in the financial times okay. saying he had deep concerns. That was the phrase he used over the WHO investigation. And he called on China to release info. And one of the controversies has been that China hasn't released like the full, I guess, like genomic data for all of the early infections. Apparently they have it, but they haven't released it. They tested a lot of these animals they collected from the, the wet market. And I think maybe they didn't release all of that. So that, that's been one of the controversies about China hiding information here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree. There's been, I wouldn't call it total continuity because I think what happened is the Trump administration kind of as a, a final, um, you know, blast out the door said, tried to escalate the rhetoric really high with the genocide of the Uyghurs thing that kind of boxes Biden in because well, they also did, they did that say, simultaneously while taking the, um, that I, I forgot if it's called like the ELLF or something. It's a, the it's some yeah, group right. that's associated with uh, – they took them off the terrorism designation list around the same yes. time, which was kind of an interesting play. Right. And I, yes, exactly. And it kind of boxes Biden in on that. I think that was the reason behind the State Department press release too. It was kind of boxing Biden in on China in a similar way to what happened with that liberals did against Trump on Russia. You know, Trump seemed like he was probably somewhat sympathetic to Russia and they boxed him in and, you know, he sent lethal aid to Ukraine and, um, you know, escalated sanctions and all this stuff. So I, I think it's the same kind of play that, you know, the Democrats will play Russia off against the Republicans and Republicans play China off against uh, the Democrats. And from a kind of military industrial complex, deep state point of view, they want conflict with both of them, is my view. I mean, they do not want to de-escalate these. They want to ratchet one up and ratchet one down at certain times, but they don't want China and Russia uniting. 
and they want to make sure that at any given time there's pressure on one or the other. And right now, I think they're moving heavily toward China. And China realistically is a much greater threat to U.S. hegemony than Russia is. I mean, it's got a much bigger population. Uh, you know, they're building up their navy quite a bit. I mean, it's nowhere near the size of the U.S. But um, you know, I think they see China really as a threat, and that that's what's driving you know the vast majority of of all of this stuff. So there was there was a there's definitely a continuity. And then there was also um, kind of aside from the official statements from the WHO, there were articles that quoted kind of like anonymous officials saying things like um, China refused to share data. And, um, you know, we were China was frustrated with our persistence and that kind of thing that um, that the WHO experts were just there to compromise and that they weren't there to really get the job done, that kind of thing. And those leaked out through the New York Times and I think the Wall Street Journal. And I believe the Wall Street Journal is actually the source of that 90, um, that point about 90 people being hospitalized with COVID-like symptoms in, in uh, October 2019. I don't think that came from an official statement as far as I know. I believe that came from a, a quote that was, I believe, although I'd have to check, anonymously given to the Wall Street Journal. Let's veer into another subject um, that is related to all this. I mean, the Chinese government at one point, or a Chinese government official at one point, did accuse the United States of uh, of being behind COVID-19. Yes. And they at one time actually did post an article from Global Research that pointed to uh, Fort Detrick as being a potential origin point for COVID-19. And I think it was Francis Boyle who was maybe even mentioned or, or, or quoted in that article. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So this happened, let's go back to this event that happened in 2019 that escaped most people's radars, including my own, which was the ordered shutdown of the bioweapons research facility at the U S military base, uh, Fort Detrick, Maryland. Tell me a little bit about that. How did that start? Was it you know, based on a, a regular inspection, who inspected them? If, if that's the case, was it a whistleblower? Did someone report on them? And what were these violations that, that caused them to get shut down? Well, I guess we should mention first, let me just mention really quick for people who may not already know, Fort Detrick, Maryland is widely considered, well, it is at least by the FBI's official investigation, it's the origin point for the weaponized anthrax that was sent through the mail that killed five people in 2001. Um, yes. So just just so people know why this is a relevant place, it's where they research bioweapons, anthrax, yes. things like that. And yeah, technically, so theoretically under the Biological Weapons Convention, uh, nobody is supposed to be developing or creating um, bioweapons except to study them in order to do prevention work. Of course, there's no, we talked about this before, but there's no... Um, verification mechanism, meaning there's nobody coming in from an international body and actually looking at what you're doing. And so there's every reason to believe that the U.S. is still developing biological weapons. I mean, I don't have a lot of doubt in my mind that that's what's happening and that it's certainly still going on at Fort Detrick. Although I sure. do have a suspicion that a lot of that's been farmed out to some of these other 
heavily Pentagon-backed biolabs that are dotted throughout the globe in places like Georgia and Ukraine. But that's beside the point. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, it it would make sense. And just so people understand why that might be the case, I mean, privatization of some of this stuff, even Battelle um, was manufacturing or dabbling in biological weapons research for the U.S. government and doing it in other countries would make sense because the regulations are oftentimes looser and uh, you can get away with more. Well, exactly. Yeah. And that kind of plays into this because what happened is that the U.S. Army runs the runs Fort Detrick and they have a place there called U.S. AMRID, which stands for U.S. Army Medic. I'm going to remember medical and uh, I, I can't remember exactly what U.S. AMRID stands for, but you can look it up, obviously. But it, it's sort of a, the U.S. Medical Army's medical lab, I guess you'd call it, at um, at Fort, located at Fort Detrick, which is a fairly big, sprawling complex. U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. That's what it stands for. So in 2019, this lab was shut down because the CDC did a what I believe was a routine investigation. And they found all of these troubling violations of of security. Um, And so it was things like there was wastewater uh, decontamination issues. Um, There was uh, the ventilation system wasn't working quite right. I can go into some of these more specifically. uh, But one thing I do want to mention is that there were two. This got very, very, very little media attention at the time. Um, and the places that covered it were mostly local Frederick news outlets. So one was the Frederick News Post, and they ended up uh, doing a FOIA request and getting a copy of the letter that the CDC sent to um, U.S. AMRID when they shut it down, listing out the um, violations with a ton of redactions, as you might expect. What's interesting and what I I don't know if other people had found I'm this. Looking I over right now, yeah, it's, I'm looking over right now. Yeah, I'm looking at the sorry. document that right now, and it is uh, it's pretty hard to decipher what some of this is actually saying, based on right. the amount of redu- redactions. And what's interesting about it is that was released by the Frederick News Post, but it doesn't match up to the other article that was was kind of the main article discussing this. Um, yeah, which was from WJLA, which is the local ABC affiliate in that area. And um, what's interesting about that is that the WJLA article did not release the their own letter that they had received, unfortunately, but they did do descriptions of each observation and the number of observations matches up. So it seems to be from the same incident. It's not like two separate things or something. And it has more detail in the WJLA article that's not in that that released FOIA letter from Frederick News Post. And what's particularly interesting is that the the number one violation is, and I'm reading here from the article, the CDC reported that an individual partially entered a room multiple times without the required respiratory protection, while other people in that room were performing procedures with a non-human primate on a necropsy table. In other words, doing some kind of like a dissection of a non-human primate and there, later on, it, um, it clarifies or it, it goes on to say that the non-human primates were infected with select agents 
And select agent is kind of a term of art that means basically like the highest, most dangerous uh, types of viruses, or I, it doesn't have to be a virus, but uh, things like Ebola or now SARS-CoV-2 is a select agent. Um, so, and there are other violations, again, like having to do with the ventilation system, people entering rooms and, um, you know, the uh, ex there was exposure to uh, biohazardous waste, a worker not wearing gloves while uh, disposing of biohazardous waste, things of this nature. And um, I think four of the observations were in the serious category, which is, I take it, the highest. And that's what caused the CDC to say, you have to shut down uh, for at least a little while, correct these issues, and then they did allow them to reopen. So, I, you know, I don't know exactly where the origin of the, the, this kind of feeding into the conspira conspiracy sphere or whatever happened. There's an AP News article that just came out a few days ago, and I think they do claim to try to track it. Um, but, I mean, that whole thing has its own issues. But, you know, other people have kind of put some pieces together. There's a story of, like, a... Um, a nursing home in, um, uh, I think it's in Virginia, which is not too far, but not necessarily that close, uh, where 54 individuals got sick from a respiratory disease, unknown respiratory disease, and that happened in like June or July 2019. So that would have been right around the time that the lab was shut down. Um, other people, you know, that this is just what's out there kind of on the internet more than Anybody's really picked it up and I think totally like tried to put a bunch of pieces together. But um, I don't know if you've heard about this, but the like the idea that these vape deaths that were happening in 2019. Yeah. And this the valley is what the CDC called it, that that maybe could have been early covid and it was covered up or something. Um, and, you know, if you look into what the symptoms of that disease are, it was things like your lungs sort of turning to glass like um uh and um other respiratory issues and things like that so the symptoms did seem to kind of match up with what code you know the symptoms of covid potentially and um you know i i didn't do a whole lot of digging on that i it it seems a little bit hard to believe i mean it would have meant that covid was spreading quite a lot in the United States at the very least for basically half of 2019 at least. And uh, that is possible. I mean, because another thing that also kind of happened is that the U.S. completely botched the testing regime uh, from the very beginning. And if you watch this Alex Gibney documentary um, called uh, Totally Under Control, it's really more like an anti-Trump kind of documentary about COVID. Sure. Uh, but it has a pretty long section that goes into um, talking deeply about why these tests were botched. And they were basically testing for some uh, some other parameter that it didn't didn't even need to be included. And that parameter ended up botching the entire test. It like it was contaminated. And so this entire first round of tests was completely. Uh, contaminated. There's other information in that documentary. But the 
the kind of feeling you get from watching it is that they were intentionally botching that early test, especially because in Europe they had their own test and it worked fine. It worked well. And instead, the U.S. decided to develop its own test and um, completely, you know, screwed it up. So, you know, so is there a possibility that they knew COVID was spreading all around and they wanted to botch all the testing so that, you know, nobody would ever kind of know that? I mean, that would be, again, a conspiratorial take. There's not like direct evidence for any of that, obviously, but I think that's the kind of idea you would be. Uh, working with if you were trying to explain how these vape deaths could possibly be tied into COVID. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I, I actually used to work kind of on tobacco related issues and stuff. And so I, I would get like news, I would follow the news on like tobacco and e-cigarettes e and all this stuff. And nothing like that had ever come out. You know, there would be deaths from e-cigarettes, but it would be stuff like, you know, a kid had gotten into the vape liquid and drank it all, you know, and had to be hospitalized. Nothing like people were just vaping and they started dying. And I think there was some claim that they maybe tried to tie it back to, to some specific um, supply chain or something of uh, some kind of marijuana vape, THC vape. And that was only for a, a very uh, specific uh, minority of them. They were trying to say it was right. vitamin E oil from. Yeah, that's what it was. I don't know how they defined it, but basically someone was making these uh, custom made vape cartridges. Apparently right. that had vitamin E oil in them. But there were a lot of people who didn't use uh, THC based vapes uh, that were falling ill with these symptoms. Yeah. As well. And so. I don't think it really, I would say that that has never been adequately explained. And here's something that, you know, that I found in February 2020, the CDC stopped tracking them. They said that they were going, you know, they were trailing off. And so they just stopped tracking completely. So this popped up in like, I don't know, September 2019, massive story for a month or two, you know, got people really freaked out about e-cigarettes. And, uh, you know, a, a few months later, uh, they all disappear and the CDC doesn't even track them anymore. So, you know, it, it does raise some questions. Uh, I, I haven't looked into it recently to know if, you know, maybe some more information has come out or anything like that. But as far as I know, that completely, you know, fell off the, the map. So that's certainly something that, you know, I, I think there are legitimate reasons that people would be wondering about this, especially when the symptoms seem so strange and did seem kind of similar to, you know, the COVID, uh, classic COVID symptoms. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many mysteries uh, that are still surrounding this. I mean, uh, it is sort of surreal to see, as you said, the lab leak theory sort of growing in prominence in the background and even getting mainstream attention now even if it's you know still saying that the origin was this specific lab i'm still you know i'm still not sold on, on the idea that this originated in wuhan I, I mean obviously i've i've sort of stuck by that but mm -hmm. i mean it is sort of surreal to see that getting more prominence 
but then you know sort of this internet censorship mechanism cracking down on sort of like any form of anything that can even have the slightest hint of being a covid conspiracy or an alternate right. science uh, paper or something like that there there's no gray area anymore and they're, they they seem to be really trying to narrow the confines of what you're allowed to talk about online and it's sort of colliding with this whole climate of internet censorship we've been facing down for the past four years. But this, I think this is sort of a perfect storm for it because, you know, on one hand, uh, you, it's not even liberals, you know, you just talk to people. I, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who'd be like, yeah, you do need to like shut down these anti-vaxxers because they're harming people. They're actually like making it so people are going to get sick. We need to also be able to talk about how, you know, this is sort of like a rushed vaccine. And we do need to talk about how there's side effects from it potentially. And it just, it just seems like there is a chilling effect just about this. So, right. And and I even feel like, you know, because Patreon now has shut down um, Last American Vagabond, unless he removes, they specifically told him, that he has to delete all quote unquote medical misinformation or he will no longer be able to keep his account. Now right. he's been covering a lot of COVID stuff. Not all of it. I agree with, I agree with his, his obviously his right to question whatever he wants to question, but it, it does seem like if they're going to go after someone like him, even the discussion we're having right now, bringing up some of these things could, could be violating some of these, you know, terms of service or whatever. And it's just, it's, it's just kind of disturbing to think about that. It's, it's already gotten that far. I don't know. I guess before we get into sort of the more conspiracy alt media realm on this subject, like what do you just have to say about that? Yeah. Well, in the especially insane thing about um, Ryan, the last American vagabond getting shut down is the post that they pointed to. He posted this on Twitter was, uh, let me, so, so the uh, title, the kind of headline for the episode was lockdowns in quotes the world's biggest psychological experiment, and can COVID vaccines alter our DNA? Well, the world's biggest psychological experiment is a direct quote from an art, from the headline of an article that's on the World Economic Forum's page. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a direct citation to the most establishment thing that you, you could possibly have. Of course, Patreon is never going to shut down the World Economic Forum. Not that they would be on Patreon, but... Um, so, I mean, that shows the insanity of it. RFK Jr. was banned from Instagram. Which, oh, I forgot about that. Jesus yeah. Christ, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, wow. And so that, w- that was for, and you know, RFK Jr. is a, a very well-known, you know, very, I, I don't know that I would call him well-respected because a lot of people do, you know, have enormous issues with him and label him an anti-vaxxer. And he, he met with Trump on that issue. And, um, he, you know, he has a long history of, of, being skeptical of vaccines and um, highlighting the dangers that get, you know, that he would say get downplayed by other other people. And, you know, I don't I, I haven't investigated vaccines and all that stuff very much. And but the, the idea that there are no side effects or that there, you know, that this vaccine was not rushed out and there may be some unknown consequences, you know, that seems extremely unlikely. And it doesn't seem like a bad thing that there's somebody out there, one person with a pl- platform saying, you know, here are some, you know, here are some alternative ideas or some other, you know, ideas that are out there. 
Um, and, you know, I, whenever I've read his stuff or looked at it, you know, he, ha- he's, he cites sources. You know, you can go and read the source. It's not like he's just um, totally coming out of left field or out of nowhere. So there is actually, I don't think I mentioned this to you, but there, just today, I just saw this. Uh, the New York Times had this article and it was like about a new way to fight disinformation or something. And the way, and it, it was some like, it's all based around some academic. And his idea is not that you should, he, he's kind of like, it literally says uh, it's against critical thinking and critical reading. What you should instead do is like, look at an article really fast, then Google the name of whoever wrote it, and then look at their Wikipedia. And if they look kind of crazy, just dismiss it. You know, it's not worth going down the rabbit hole for. This, this is literally what the article is saying is the way to like fight disinformation. And the example it uses is RFK Jr. So he pulls up some article Jeez. from RFK Jr. And then he Googles his name and then he goes to Wikipedia and he sees, oh, he's an anti-vaxxer. So I should, you know, you shouldn't have to spend your time thinking about this. Just dismiss it. It's insane. I mean, that that would be the exact opposite of my, well, the one thing I would say is that it is always good to search the source if you're not familiar with them, because you will learn a lot that way, a lot about where they're coming from and what the point of what, why are they saying what they're saying? Sure. That That's an important thing to do. But then you go back and you critically engage with whatever they're saying based on that. Look at their sources, you know? Um, well, yeah. And I also, I mean, not to say there's any connection between the two, because sometimes I even, you know, guffaw or mock these premises, but like, you know, it is sort of interesting that like he's coming out there in the last few years being very aggressively outspoken about his father's murder, you know, potentially right. not being <laughs> or being some potential conspiracy of some kind, absolving Sirhan Sirhan of the assassination. And then he's just getting, man, he's getting blasted. He's getting blasted right now. I mean, and yeah, he is saying anti-vax things, I guess, that could be characterized as anti-vaxxer during a pandemic. So maybe it's just because of that. But I I, I don't know. I keep going back to that thinking, damn, like, is this what happens when anybody just, you know, cracks that back up again? Um, Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, I I guess speaking of um, the Kennedy family, there's someone that you follow that I should probably follow more. And I don't know when I say follow, I don't know if you, you listen to him as a serious news source, but he's been around for a long time. His name is Dave Emery. Um, he has been sort of talking for a long time about this sort of uh, continuation of like the third Reich that sort of uh, like embedded itself. I don't know if he's specifically talking about just American government or other governments in the world, but that's say global probably, but yeah. Yeah. You believe that Dave Emery sort of has a similar view point that you and I do on this idea of potentially the Wuhan Institute for Virology being almost like a patsy. Now, I guess describe what you mean by that and and why, like, in the same way that Oswald was a pat, like a potential patsy in JFK, and go and go into that a little bit more. What you meant by that. Or what well, he meant by that. Yeah, I would frame it more as what he meant. I mean, I am still, this is not a very satisfying take ever, but I'm still very agnostic <laughs> about quite a lot of details um, related to the origin. I mean, I do, if I were to pinpoint one belief I do have, it's that it, the, there's a strong likelihood that it came from a lab somewhere. 
that I feel that that's related to some of the genomic analysis that people have done and related just to a lot of, you know, a lot of things that there are a lot of lab leaks out there, that there are a lot of bio labs out there and that this work has been going on and that the particular work that was being done was, for example, to uh, replace the spike protein in a coronavirus and make it more transmissible. And if you look at for example, RATG13 compared to SARS-CoV-2, the main difference is the spike protein. Um, so it, it does look like it was a kind of chimeric uh, manipulated virus. Now, where it came from, I think there is a lot of stuff out there that potentially could implicate um, Wuhan Institute of Virology. But, you know, what I was trying to get at earlier is there is also quite a lot of possibility for it to have basically been released from anywhere. There are a lot of different labs doing SARS coronavirus research. Uh, for example, the Tbilisi Luger Center, the U.S. backed bio lab, they're known to be doing it in conjunction with EcoHealth Alliance, uh, University of North Carolina, Fort Detrick. Surely things are happening at Fort Detrick um, that, you know, we have no idea what's going on. So I would offer up Dave Emery's viewpoint on it kind of as a framework for potentially understand or looking at this it, that allows you to, to to find a way that, um, you know, of kind of trying to uh, parse through these different narratives and these seemingly people on the same side seemingly being in kind of conflict with each other. Because what Dave Emery's kind of idea that he's promoted is he's called it the Oswald Institute of Virology. And what he means by that is that Oswald, um, you know, most many of the best JFK uh, conspiracy researchers will will tell you, uh, he there was kind of a phase one, phase two thing with Oswald and the and the the narrative, the public narrative. The first thing with Oswald that was put out there was this guy's a died in the wool communist. He went down to Mexico. You know, he had defected to the Soviet Union and come back. He was. Fair Play for Cuba committee, handing out pamphlets, and uh, he went down to Mexico because he was trying to get free passage to Cuba or um, the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, basically he was a Marxist, you know, he was carrying Marx and uh, a rifle in his backyard and all that stuff. So he was painted red. They painted Oswald red. And then when the Warren Commission came out, it kind of wiped that away. And what it said was, you know, Oswald was more just a crazy nut. He was a lone actor, lone wolf. And, you know, you shouldn't look at blaming the Soviet Union for it. You shouldn't look at blaming Cuba for it. You know, it wasn't really a communist thing. He was just a crazy guy. And I think there's something potentially that's happening here. And it's potentially a way of understanding what's going on, which is that there's this kind of phase one narrative in terms of a lab origin theory, which is, uh, and it's not quite the same timeline as that, but um, <clears throat> the, the way you could look at it is it's being painted like, yes, China did it, lab origin, it's all China, uh, you know, they're creating bioweapons, they're releasing them, yada, yada, yada. And then the WHO committee, and there's going to be a Lancet committee, which Peter Dosick is also on. They're going to come in and they're going to kind of wipe that away, offer a more benign theory, which is, you know, it wasn't a lab origin. It was actually just kind of 
you know, it, it was a bat and it dropped it into a ferret and the ferret was at a market somewhere. And, you know, these things kind of happen. It's zoonotic origin and we need to focus on, you know, not infringing on bat uh, environments or whatever. In other words, a more benign theory that kind of wipes away all of that, um, that uh, ill will toward a certain nation state in the same way that Oswald being a lone nut kind of wiped away that ill will toward the Soviet Union and Cuba, except that for people who come by later, because, you know, they're going to continue to investigate the COVID origins. I mean, I don't think that's really going to go away. We're not going to get a clear, bright line. Absolutely. This is what happened story probably ever. But people are going to continue to look at it in the same way they continue to look at the JFK story. And one of the things with JFK, this actually just happened with Tucker Carlson, where Tucker Carlson, for some reason, I don't know why this was, he ran a segment that was about how Lee Harvey Oswald was a communist. And this was the big thing about his, again, I have no idea why he was even running this story. But in other words, he's gone back and he's kind of gone back to that early story and he's looked at it and he's like, well, really, when you look at it, you know, Oswald went to the Soviet Union and he read Marx and he was down in Mexico and Soviet embassy and all this stuff. Uh, In other words, kind of retrieving that original story. And I think that's potentially what will happen here. You'll get an unsatisfying closure narrative similar to the Warren Commission report. And you'll, you know, certain research will researchers will continue to look back at it and they'll continue to look back to those early stories and see, oh, actually China was hiding all of this stuff. China was, you know, doing this and that. And they'll retrieve that original kind of theory that uh, that actually it was China behind it and that the whatever the official kind of narrative or official report, quote unquote, is that that's just a whitewash in order to avoid a nuclear war with China in the same way that the Warren Commission report is read by some people as that was just a way of getting uh, the Soviet Union off the hook so we didn't enter a nuclear war. Were you thinking really outside the box? I mean, I like, I mean, is that is that what David Emery, has, does he go as far into that line of thought that you're going into? Because, I mean, I like that that could eventually, I mean, not that I actually like, I'm not saying that, I'm just appreciating sort of the thinking, the line of thinking that you're coming from on this, because um, it does make a lot of sense that it could sort of be whitewashed like that in history, if more, if this was to become more the consensus that it was a lab leak. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think Dave, uh, Dave Emery definitely has gone down that path. I don't know if he would phrase everything quite the way that I did, but I think one of the interesting things to note right here, right now, is that you do have a conflict between what I'll call kind of institutional forces. So you have Peter Dosick, runs Eco Health Alliance, heavily, heavily backed by uh, the Defense Department and specifically Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which is um, basically their bio weapon, their bio defense, quote unquote, um, arm. And what he's out there saying is, don't listen to U.S. intelligence. U.S. intelligence is wrong. Uh, U.S. intelligence doesn't know what they're talking about. Because on the other end, you have these stories. For example, there was one by Ken Delanian, who is, you know, a pure conduit for CIA information. He used to, you know, send it, literally send his drafts off to CIA to be approved before sending them to his editor. And he's an NBC News 
uh, just recently writing a story saying uh, Western intelligence has, has classified information and um, there, you know, they have information that that heavily suggests that there's a lab origin and that there's a lot of uh, at least circumstantial evidence that a lab accident occurred and that, you know, basically Wuhan Institute of Virology is the, the culprit behind all of it. Uh, so there is this this interesting kind of dichotomous um, antagonism between the State Department, U.S. intelligence, kind of really strongly hinting toward the lab origin thing, and Peter Dosick and Ralph Barrick and and really even a lot of the just mainstream journalists, mainstream uh, science type people saying, no way, lab origin is completely off the table and you're crazy for, for even looking into it. Yeah, so I mean, in general, like the conspiracy and alt media scene and, you know, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, even websites like Zero Hedge that are sort of like a mixture of the two are pushing um, either... I guess theories uh, saying that the virus is not dangerous, that um, you know, like like it's or either that it's fake. Um, th that's one common narrative you hear. Another one um, is that uh, you know things just really uh, hyperbolic anti-China things that are coming through conspiracy media in general. Um, but you know, and then we also saw the neocons pushing this a uh, long time ago. Uh, when this pandemic first started, really, uh, some of them were pushing it, saying that it was sort of a, a Chinese military bioweapon. And they never really quite said if they, it was intentionally released or not. Um, and even, you know, the lab leak origin theories that we've been discussing largely, no one who's pushing those in, you know, the NY Mag article, this Wall Street Journal, Journal article, are suggesting that it was intentionally released by anybody. Um, so, I guess what's interesting to me, well, then uh, let me just also say that then there's a lot of sort of like political, almost like New World Order conspiratorial thinking in that media sphere too. And some of it is legitimate. I mean, Bill Gates is really creepy and is really powerful. He's buying up all the farmland on the planet somehow. He's doing all these, I mean, he just seems to have all this huge amount of influence. Um, he was in the 60 minute special that was sponsored by Pfizer. Uh, pushing the vaccine. Um, Robert Kennedy, F. Kennedy uh, Jr. posted that right before his Instagram was banned. There doesn't seem to be a connection. And I find this interesting as someone who's, you know, familiar with all this sort of conspiratorial, all these narratives over time and the true and the ones that I think are disinfo. But I find it interesting that there's not a connection between sort of that New World Order, Great Reset conspiracy type uh, framework with this idea that this was intentionally released. And maybe I'm just sort of fixated on that and why that's, there's not more people talking about that. But that seems like just a really obvious kind of fantastical, you know, I'm not saying that's a fun thing to believe in, but it seems it seems like something that would that should be existing right now, taking up some of the energy in the in the conspiracy room. And I'm just a little yeah. surprised by that. Like why why do you think there's not more people who are going there even with you know, QAnon or, or when they talk about Bill Gates doing this, like, you know, cause what was the original, there was that exercise that was, um, God, I want to event 201 a, event 201. That was sort yeah. of at the beginning. That was people's mindset at the beginning. 
And I thought that that was, you know, that was a little more on the on the target or over the target, I would say, from yeah. what I believe, even though I still think it was, you know, pretty fantastical. But I'm just interested to hear from you, like, what what do you think about where it's gone now compared to then? And why do you think there's not more connective or those narratives aren't connected in the in that realm? Yeah, well, I'll say for myself that the and it was really especially Whitney Webb's reporting on Event 201. She went into Crimson Contagion and showed that, you know, a lot of the same people were connected back to Dark Winter. Um, and there was actually one I just found out about recently that's barely been covered at all called SPARS. And it was like St. Paul um, uh, respiratory syndrome or whatever. And it was another simulation like this. But some of the, I mean, that really like raised my, you know, raised my eyebrows when I saw that stuff, because it, it did hint at the possibility um, that, you know, there was some kind of foreknowledge for it, just like there was, you know, did absolutely seem to be for the anthrax attacks. That, um, but I think your point is a question that I've had a lot, uh, which is, like you said, why are the people who are most going down the road of like, this is the Great Reset, uh, you know, World Economic Forum, Bill Gates, all that stuff, that this is a, a really kind of like a, a shock doctrine for the entire globe where they're trying to reorder the entire nature of how we interact and how society works and how schools work. And Which how, even if you're not a, even if you're not someone who thinks in a conspiratorial fashion that's the result of all this yeah it's I mean, not it even like happened. you don't have to be like uh they've pre-planned all this they're yeah it's it's shock it's the shock shock doctrine it's a, sort of a lefty concept that we you know lefties are pretty familiar with that it's this disaster capitalism thing and this is one of the biggest opportunities ever for some yeah, of these absolutely. oligarchs and people to really cash out on this it's basically a fire sale i mean yeah. even just real estate you know you can grab right now for fucking cheap and flip it when this is all over. I mean, even if you're just like a, a small time investor. So what do you think yeah. these mega billionaires are doing? Yeah. And so I don't know why that the people who are most down that road seem to be also the people who are most down the road of diminishing the virus. And I will say, I mean, you know, the virus is not as deadly as it was made out to be at the beginning. Sure. I mean, I think that that is just a fact. Um, but, you know, I mean, Off Guardian, I don't know if you ever followed them. They used to be pretty good. It's a British run site. You know, they used to be, I thought, pretty good on kind of uh, anti, anti, anti Russia stuff, you know, questioning a lot of the, the bad Russia narratives, say good stuff on like the Skripal poisoning, I remember. I mean, they're running articles that literally this thing doesn't exist, that like SARS-CoV-2 isn't really a virus because it's never been isolated or something. I mean, that's pretty far into the realm of just bizarre. It's so bizarre that I actually saw Meryl Nass, somebody asked her about it on her blog, and she started wondering, you know, is this just deliberate disinfo that's being uh, spread out there? Because it's so much of a kind of suck away from anything that is kind of relevant to the disease into you just have to prove that viruses even exist. But I don't know. There are, there are some people who very adamantly believe this, you know, certain that viruses way. don't exist. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, I mean, well, I mean, it's when weird I say people, when... I don't mean like, you know, totally like legitimate, but I don't know, no, you know, Phil Greaves, the Twitter yes. communist. Yeah. Um, 
he yeah he has completely gone to questioning germ theory and the existence of of germ i have theory. seen that yeah i've seen some of those yeah. things he's saying i mean i, I mean because when the spanish flu happened we didn't even know what a virus was it hadn't the concept hadn't even been discovered yet i think technically right yeah so we that's my I mean, understanding that's like it just seems weird to go back to the thinking that everything is caused by some kind of because essentially if you don't believe in viruses you're saying that everything's a bacterial infection right well i mean his, what, what else what else does that a mean a lot of people his and a lot of people's theories are are basically that yeah i guess that you get diseases through bacteria or whatever wherever else and then they're all being lumped under but then how does it spread COVID. through the air so fast i mean like what is there because that's they would like say the it big... doesn't they, people are getting sick in a lot of different ways and then they're just grouping it all as COVID. and none of it huh. COVID isn't a real thing sars cov2 isn't but they really think a, this about all viruses in general, though, not just COVID. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've seen a little bit about what you're talking about, but I just am a little unfamiliar with the whole virus denialism. I didn't realize it was yeah. such a... Well, and I haven't gone down that road. You know, maybe I, I critiqued the New York Times earlier. I guess I'm doing the same thing here where I haven't fully investigated, you know, whether viruses exist yet. But, um, you know, I, I mean... What I'm trying to say is just, you know, that is the one far, far end of the spectrum. And then, you know, you do have a lot of sites. I mean, I would, I would say Last American Vagabond is kind of in this where they, you know, have gotten into questioning, you know, how much of a problem the virus really is compared, at least comparative to what the response has been. Uh, global research has been pretty pretty far down that road, Chosadovsky especially. I, I tend to follow global research. You know, just not, you know, they have a lot of very crappy articles and some pretty good articles, um, but they've gone very hard down the road of like, you know, this is basically nothing. The PCR tests are kind of a con job to to keep the virus alive, quote unquote, in people's minds so that you they can like continue to positive reset. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Um, huh. And I mean, I because well, that's, think that's interesting probably... because I mean, just a counterpoint to that. I mean, I I know this is going to sound like I'm just one of these, you know, fact checker people who's getting irritated at hearing something like that. But I, I'm going to go there for a second because there was just a guy who did. He's not like a COVID denier. He just was determined to do. He sounded like tech rich guy, and he was determined to do this yearly conference that he did. It's called like something 360 that he would do every year in like a giant convention center, and he got enough people who were willing to like take a risk and go into some convention center somewhere where it was like legal to gather. I think he did it like on some island somewhere. And he had everybody take the PCR tests multiple times, like 72 hours before they got there, five hours before they arrived at the door. Then when they arrived at the door, they get a temperature check and another PCR test. But the guy took extra precautions for all this. And a bunch of people still got COVID, even though all the results were negative. They only had to turn away maybe like three people that tested positive. Yeah. So yeah, like I don't, I'm not someone who's going around saying these tests are great and that they're totally accurate, but to say that they're there to keep the virus alive and they're just giving false positives to do so is just doesn't hold up against the facts. I mean, they, they give false negatives too. I mean, that's been shown. So I don't know. Right. I mean, it's just, when I hear stuff like that, it's particularly irritating. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there are people who've been who have followed it a lot and, uh, you know, have their own kind of theories. It, and I, I would say with COVID, 
almost every variation. I feel like I've seen almost every variation of every possible theory that it's like from the one end that it's completely fake. And so there's nothing to the, you know, I think you still see people on the other end that, yeah, actually they're being undercounted. And, um, you know, there are actually a lot of deaths that are COVID deaths that aren't being counted as that or something like, you know. Uh, so, and there there's other people who kind of, are more focused on the treatment side. And um, I know Merrill Nass is kind of in this group of, um, you know, saying that hydroxychloroquine uh, does work or can work. Ivermectin is one that people have been talking about, which is, I think, what's in your dog's heartworm medicine. Um, and that, that that actually works. Well, apparently, they've been using it in India, and India's had pretty good results. So it could be tied to ivermectin, vitamin D. You know, these things that are, are pretty broad, broadly available, um, that these are being discounted as treatments in order to push everybody toward the vaccine. I think that's that's a kind of narrative that's out there as well, that a lot of what this is all about was just like pushing toward the vaccines. And there's something I don't know what, you know, I, I, maybe people have different ideas about what they imagine the vaccine is going to do. But, um, you know, th that certainly in the realm there for a while there was the 5g thing which i never really understood what was going on with that theory oh that, yeah, like the... somehow 5g <laughs> was causing people to get sick and yeah that maybe well, it was or it was like activated by 5g the virus or something well some of the very very first uh i guess you could call it terrorism or vandalism done in response to the covid lockdowns was burning down of 5g towers I don't know if you remember that. It was seemed like to I be do, a little yeah. bit of a pattern for a, for a couple of weeks. There was more. There was it was like four or five of them that went up in different. One of them in the UK, um, one of them here in the United States. And now there's a lot of uh, all of a sudden here in the Bay Area. I don't know if you've heard of this Gumby, but there's been a lot of hate crimes being done against uh, elderly Asian Americans. San Francisco and in Oakland and there's nobody's really been able to catch the people who've been doing this yet but it's just the only explanation I can think of is like why go after only these elderly Asian people some of them are Chinese some of them have been Thai it just seems to be related somehow to all this you know anti-China sentiment out there to the average person it maybe doesn't seem like there's that much anti-China sentiment out there I'm just trying to imagine where this would be coming from I mean maybe just the mere fact that Everybody understands that somehow this came from China or is yeah. all that all that needs to happen in, in somebody's mind to Yeah. Well and it and another thing that kind of ties those together, the conspiracy stuff and the China to blame stuff is AP had this long, long investigation thing that came out a few days ago that they did with the uh Digital Forensics Research Lab, which is run by the Atlantic Council, so you know, yeah. you're already far down the 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 well of U.S. disinfo. But so the whole thing was about how China is like feeding out disinformation and conspiracy theories related to COVID, mm -hmm. and they mostly focus not. So it it does seem like it's a little out of step with where the conspiracy movement or whatever has gone, because I think. Most people are more, most of the conspiracy media is more down this, you know, they're overplaying COVID and Great Reset stuff. Uh, whereas this focused more on the idea that China uh, 
was pushing the idea that um, it was a deliberate, uh, basically that China was pushing the idea that the U.S. released it and it was a, a bioweapon. And so they um, they uh, they mentioned Francis Boyle in there, which is interesting because he actually pushed the idea that it came from Wuhan and was a bioweapon. And um, they talk about, I think Kevin Barrett's mentioned in there and Oof. that site Great Game India, which... Um, Ooh, that's interesting. I, that that site, I think that's uh, run by Steve Bannon somehow, isn't it? Is it really? It seems linked to him somehow. I mean, I was trying to figure out where that was one of those. Sometimes I get fixated on these mysterious websites that that sometimes seem to be like a mixture of like conspiracy and real news stuff. And that was one yeah. that seemed to be pushing a lot of Steve random Steve Bannon appearances and stuff. And I'm and it just I that was just you know so I had, the, maybe it has nothing reason- to do with them. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the reason they're mentioned in this article is they had a they they describe it as previously little known website, and they published a story that said China stole the virus from a Canadian lab in Winnipeg, mm. and um, there was because there was some kind of weird story around a break in in Winnipeg uh, of this bio lab, and so I guess they were advancing the idea that China had done it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so the whole, but the whole investigation is, you know, just trying to, it, it doesn't really have, what's kind of funny about it is like, there's a lot of different narratives and the people they point to, because global research is mentioned in there as well. Uh, Luke Montagnier, who actually is not a conspiracy theorist, he's the guy who discovered HIV and has been kind of outside the scientific mainstream for a while, but he was saying that he thought it was probably from a lab. Um, all these people have different really ideas and some of them actually implicate China. So it, the whole article doesn't really make that sense. It's not very coherent. You know, there, it does seem to be kind of a first, I don't know, salvo in a kind of pivot where for the last, I don't know, five to eight years or whatever, it's been all about Russian disinformation that Russia is pushing you know, disinformation all around the globe and that they're very sophisticated at it. And maybe now it's pivoting a little bit more toward looking at China as being the disinformation promoter and that they're behind all of these conspiracy theories and trying to tie in the same way that they would always try to tie, I don't know, global research or whatever to Russia. Now you're going to see it where they're trying to tie these sites to China. Totally. And I think that that's, you know, we're we're already moving into a, a disturbing realm where a lot of the people who research QAnon and and track these conspiracies on the far right, you know, they they've sort of uh, been a lot of the same people who've been pushing for censorship, and even some of those people are now associating with and working with the Atlantic Council's digital forensics lab and Bellingcat, and um, it's very troubling to see. And I think uh, it's you know, I I just think that it's just it's really going to harm the discourse out there and people, and there's already a chilling effect. I mean, I keep going back to this idea of a chilling effect because I I do think, um, you know, people will make decisions based on worrying if they're going to get deplatformed or not off of these, you know, whether it be YouTube, Patreon, whatever. So to me, it's self-censorship and things like that. And I don't know, it's just very concerning. So this disinformation sort of battling uh, think tank circuit coming out of DC, one of the most prominent 
places that's been doing that is called the Alliance for Securing Democracy. And you just mentioned this pivot of pivoting from fighting Russian disinformation or debunking Russian disinformation to China. And Alliance for Securing Democracy appears to be doing the same thing. Um, they are now tracking Chinese state media and and Chinese um, disinformation bots and sort of presenting wow. analysis based on that. So, Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so I think that that's going to be you know, where things are going to be heading. I mean, even though Navalny is, uh, you know, arrested and he was supposedly just poisoned by Putin and, and all these protests have been happening in Russia, it does seem like China is still going to be the hotspot in terms of where most of the propaganda is going to be coming from moving forward. Yeah, I totally agree. And Alliance for Securing Democracy, they were, were they the ones that did the Hamilton 68? Yeah. And yeah. Jake Sullivan, that was sort of one of those for, uh, think tanks that appeared that had a bunch of Obama-era people, Hillary people, and right. like neo Bush-era neocons like Michael right. Chertoff oh. and Bill Kristol. Right, right, right. Had Jake Sullivan, uh, Mike Morrell, um, forgetting who else. There was someone... Uh, McFall, maybe? Was... Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I don't think, you know, it's, I don't think they're going to like ratchet down with Russia that much, but I, I do think it's definitely ratcheting up with China. And I do think that's going to be the main antagonist. And, you know, you, you can follow a lot of this stuff. If you look at like kind of military publications, especially stuff related to the, the Navy, you know, they talk about great power competition all the time. And they talk about securing the Arctic because the Arctic's all melting. So that's now a, a field of, of combat or whatever, a field of activity. So there, there's all this stuff about, you know, the U.S. has this whole strategic plan for the Arctic where they want to be controlling it as opposed to Russia or China. They're actually more worried about China, I guess, because China is more, more of a naval presence. And... Um, you know, still the stuff with the South China Sea and uh, uh, um, the the Uyghurs, uh, East Turkmenistan, like you said, Afghanistan, which, you know, they're always part of the idea there is that I think that the reason that the U.S. was always in Afghanistan is that it's this bridge kind of between China, the Middle East and over to uh, between China and the Middle East. So. I think there's a lot of different little hotspots kind of on the periphery. Hong Kong, of course, another one that's that kind of uh, bubbled up a, a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I really am expecting that it we're going to get a lot of um, ratcheting up of the anti-China stuff. And there's going to be this attempt to kind of cleave China away from the because there are a lot of business connections and business interests, you know, Disney has a big presence in China and a lot of tech companies obviously have a big presence in China. So I do think there's going to be this kind of cleaving away that is going to happen. I mean, we'll see. Um, but I don't expect good uh, scenarios to play out. Yeah, I mean, I don't either. I mean, and it is strange to see some of the continuity um, that I personally was not expecting between the Trump uh, and Biden administration on just the China issue and the pivot. Yeah, I mean, I guess let's just hope that 
we can keep having these kinds of discussions uh, on platforms like SoundCloud and uh, that they'll won't just shut down anybody trying to bring up anything like what we've been talking about today. I mean, even just the mere suggestion, uh, you know, now that lab leak is being talked about in the New York magazine, maybe uh, we can just start pontificating about, um, you know, the crazy scenario of someone intentionally release this and i'm not saying i personally believe that or that even everybody should be talking about that let's consider all possibilities let's instead of just going with a pet theory and i think that that's one of the problems that's always sort of happened in this realm of deep politics and conspiracy research is a lot of people tend to do that and fixate on one and sort of go into these different camps i mean look at all this all these things that gumby has been talking about i mean there's so many different threads here that that just paint a really uh interesting and bizarre picture of what might have actually happened here and there's still probably so much more just to leave our listeners with this because i think maybe some people are wondering this because i've been wondering this while you've been talking and you didn't go into it too deeply but just leave our listeners with your own opinions or thoughts on why you think this is being covered up as hard as it is 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 it just that to prevent some kind of international incident and and it seems like it would require a lot of players too to cover up or to try to distract people away from looking at the deeper into the origin. So what comes to mind for you about why you think that's sort of being um, tiptoed around? I don't know. I mean, I, I go back to the, well, first I should say that the people who are most expert in this area all tend to be strongly uh, protective of their own domain. And what what I mean by that is that the researchers who do gain-of-function research do what I would call weaponization research, they would dispute that, um, you know, do not want to cede the ground that this global pandemic was caused by a lab-borne uh, virus, whether that was a leak or whether that was intentional. You know, they do not want to go there because it cuts to the core of the whole reason that everybody was afraid of what they're doing and the reason that it was all shut down, um, funding for it was shut down uh, by the Obama administration. So, I mean, I think that that was part of the initial kickoff. And one of the things that came out in some FOIA requests that this group U.S. Right to Know did is that Peter Dosick, who's very deeply involved in all this stuff, had orchestrated this letter to the Lancet about the um, saying there's no way there's a lab origin, you know, and that was very early on in the process. From there, I think that just kind of set the tone and a lot of online researchers really, and even a lot of the articles now will kind of point to this Twitter group called Drastic, which um, I'm forgetting what that acronym actually stands for. It's um, got a bunch of different uh, people in it, like this guy, Billy Bostickson and Harvard to the Big House, who got the first peer-reviewed articles suggesting a lab origin published and uh, there's some other other people involved in that but they have done quite a lot of research um, that has brought up things that do point toward lab origin some of the stuff they they've found is pointed toward um, toward Wuhan specifically some things they found have have pointed in somewhat other directions although I think as a whole they they very strongly are on the Wuhan did it kind of side of things or is responsible, I should say. Um, 
And so I think there just a lot of information was sort of compiled that it was a little bit difficult to ignore. And a lot of other scientists who weren't necessarily involved in gain-of-function type research started looking at it, and some became more supportive or at least open to the idea. Even Bill Nye had an interview with this guy, David Relman, uh, talking about lab origin. So that's, you know, very, very mainstream kind of uh, audience that he's talking to there. And, um, you know, I, I think it's going to continue to be a factor out there. I think there will be unsatisfying official statements and conclusions, and a lot of things will be leaked out. I think there's a kind of a cache of information or disinformation that the U.S. Intelligence Committee is sitting on, and I think that's going to be kind of peppered out whenever they need, you know, to to uh, advance some kind of anti-China uh, narratives out there. I think, you know, we'll, we'll be treated to those for probably the next 10 years or something. Um, as far as, you know, I mean, mostly I don't think average people are that resistant, certainly to the idea that this came from a lab. I mean, I think everybody kind of in their head imagines that bioweapons research is still going on, that it is very dangerous, that it wouldn't be hard to infect somebody and for that infection to escape. I mean, the movie Outbreak was all about this. Um, and so I don't know that, you know, and I, I think that's part of where the fear is from, you know, from the defenders of the kind of mainstream or establishment is that people will start going down all of these different paths, questioning, you know, lab origin, questioning all the things we've talked about. And I, I do think that there's a lot of fear that comes from that, that that people, you know, are not necessarily that don't necessarily buy into the establishment narrative when they are treated to other possibilities. And, um, you know, that's certainly something I try to stay open to as many possibilities as I can, always trying to incorporate new information into the, you know, the things that I feel like I know or question the things I know. And I mean, I think that's all any of us can, can try to do as much as possible, but it's becoming harder and harder with um, kind of the clamp down and uh, uh, prohibitions on on narratives. I think that's going on out there. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's uh, it is quite depressing to see what's uh, happening out there, um, and it's why I think people who want to do this kind of stuff should not rely on social media channels or services like YouTube and try to sort of build your own following independently. I mean, even PayPal, you know, has kicked people off for political speech. It's, it can really go anywhere. It's, it's like you almost have to do things the old school way to be completely immune from it. And, uh, that's just the way things are, things are, going to be and i think in a lot of ways that's how we should have always been thinking about this because even though maybe a lot of people got boosted or had their stuff go viral or got more eyeballs and ears on their material through social media and spreading it that way i think in a large way it sort of set back our ability to actually like do truly revolutionary things like in a in a large sense not just a political sense i mean even argue in just a cultural sense i mean it sort of creates sort of more of a homo homogenous 
psychological, you know, effect where people just, you know, tend to imitate what other people do and things like that. So that's really it. I, I don't, I think we pretty much covered it all Gumby. Um, and, uh, thank you so much for joining me again to pick up our conversation where we left off and, uh, we should continue to discuss this if we can, if we still can, if we can. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Hi, it's Robbie again. Thank you for being a listener of Media Roots Radio. If you like today's podcast and you're not yet a subscriber to the Media Roots Radio Patreon, please consider becoming a subscriber for as little as $5 a month. This gives you access to our premium bonus episode, which we release one time a month. And we have a regular ongoing series right now called the Freemasonic History of the United States that's now going to be six parts long at the end of February when we release part six. And it will be approximately 27 hours worth of content. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to become a subscriber, please go to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Take care out there. Thank you.